This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Real solutions for the real world. Man, have we got a great show for you today. That's putting a lot of uh, pressure pressure on the show. Real solutions? Yeah, we've got some real solutions. Really? We, you hear all the time. How do the, I produce a show and not know this? Well, yeah, you got to go to our meetings. Okay. You got to be at our meetings. Real solutions? Yeah, real solutions. You come up with a bumper sticker a day. A meme. I like to meme. Okay. That's just my latest meme. Hey, uh, welcome to uh, Ice Cream for Breakfast Day. It's a great day. Benny loves it. This is Ben's day. It is. Because Ben doesn't... Ben makes ice cream. He's an ice creameteer. Is that what we call you? Sure. It's like a mouseketeer with ice cream. Or a chocolatier. <laughs> or a chocolatier. He's an ice creameteer. But for breakfast, Ben? You ever had ice cream for breakfast? Yeah, I have. What, what do you have? Ooh, pancakes and syrup and... It's usually just like a milkshake. It works out pretty well. Like bacon in it? You put bacon in it? No, it's, it's usually like a, Ooh, probably a, like a, a strawberry ice cream with a little bit of a milk. You stir it up. Peanut butter? Uh, no. Protein. It's protein. Yeah, I know. I mean, so, I, I, just I think it's ideas. healthy. Like okay. dairy, protein. Huh. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Well, happy day. Thank you. A little ice cream now, here. Now, if you have ice cream for breakfast, if you stick with the more fruit line... Centric, fruit-centric the, ice cream yeah, versus the, the caramel or the candy or the cookie-type yeah. ice cream. Is that is that what you would – which would you go with, I guess I'm asking? Would I'm, you go with the fruit or would you go with the I'm candy? A, I'm a savory myself. The salty. So I'm a salty guy. It's more of the – I'm not into fruity drinks. Okay. Yesterday I had a fruity drink. And how did that go for you? Eh, a little acid reflux. A little kale? Was there any kale in no. this drink? Okay. Kale, No. Uh, no kale. Trying to gauge what your wife will let you eat. Yeah, no. Or, may, I, or make well, you eat, whichever. Well, yeah. Nobody should eat kale. No. You, it's, at a, it's on the salad bar to decorate the salad bar. My wife will mix Not it into something. Eaten. And I'm like, what did you do to this? This was probably fine by itself. <laughs> now it's all, it's got this kale in it. I just added a little kale. Get off my back. I go, if you'd like some kale, we cannot purchase it. We can just get the weeds in the backyard during the summer. <laughs> I'll bring them in. We'll do it. No problem. Did, did, uh, did you see, um, the ju- what Justice O'Connor said. This is interesting. No, what did she say? She said they ought to replace Antonin Scalia immediately. Get the name in there. Let's go. Well, she's a liberal judge. No, she wasn't a liberal judge. She was a conservative judge from Arizona. First female on the Supreme Court. Replace quickly. Get over it. It's huh. not political. Of course, Get them in there to do their of job. Of course, it's political. I think when you get in there, it's what you what the key is because we don't have the intellect that they do. Okay. It's well, they're, not they're to in them. The, it's just intellectual. It's just a job. Let's just do it. Go. But it's it's a fight of ideas. So yeah. if you it, just get somebody in there that knows how to do their job, and it's less political than it is just argue your position. And Antonin Scalia, she said, what, was brilliant at doing that. What it sounds like is she might have been conservative going in. But that She's been in that little vacuum of the court, she turned very liberal coming back out. Or oh wait, or 
what we might find out is everything isn't conservative liberal. It is, though. I watch the news. That's what they tell me. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> what it might be is that there's a balance. There's a there's an arg, there's a push of ideas and ideas. Some seem more coherent than others and coherent ideas will be adopted and people will accept less coherent ideas. So it's about arguing your idea. And then Ted at, at Cruz, a table with nine people, they just argue. Ted Cruz says he doesn't want to look into the eyes of his daughters and say that he, he gambled away their, their liberties. Yeah. If you a, live by the pen, you die by the pen. And my pen has got an eraser. He also says huh? this could be the end what? of liberty as we know it. You know what, though? That is the same guy, yeah. Theodore Cruz, yes. who sings to his wife. Did you see that? I heard that, I played, and my I, ears are still bleeding. I play. He didn't really sing. He, no, he talked. It was sort of half. He was trying kind of <laughs> stuff you don't share with people. But you know, it's stupid. <laughs> well, there was that moment that um, who who was the host guy? That Anderson was Cooper. Uh, Anderson Cooper. Asked him the question. So I hear I hear you sing to your wife, and <laughs> there was that up. moment like, don't do it. What are you doing? Don't do it. <laughs> well, I don't sing, but he he sang. He's, when they got, he talked, that was like in the, in the clip we saw. That was the first like five seconds. My wife said, "Stop! He's going to sing." And I go, "Yeah, let's watch." No, stop! <laughs> I don't need to hear this. Oh, and then it's just things that he sings and to it was, his I wife. Mean, but you and, could maybe there's some women out there. What did your wife say? Because maybe someone would be like, "Oh, that's cute." No, she said, "Huh." Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. He had, he had such a good thing going. See the thing. You know, there's then he's he, saying is he did, that's his that's his Howard Dean what, scream. What moment. he said was he uh, Ted Cruz would call his wife at work, yeah, and on voicemail or if she had him on speaker, he would sing and kind of embarrass her in the office. I mean that's cute. See what I do is I call my wife and if yeah. I leave a message, I'll, I'll say please call me back and then I give her my cell phone number. Which, of course, she either knows or has on a speed dial. Right. But I repeat it like three times, you know, like people yeah. do on voicemails. And then you sing to and her. And she thinks it's funny. I don't sing. No, but when you're alone with her, you'll sing to her. Or, or I, 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 I treat it as like a, some sort of like business opportunity pitch for yeah. her to call me back to, you know, find out what groceries she wants me to buy. Yeah. You just have to you, – you play yeah. around on the phone. But you don't share that in public and that's what he did. He did. He, he sang that song and then another song. But you, if you're going to sing to your wife, you sing Barry White. Oh yeah, you, you make say, hey baby. You make yourself sound like that you really know how to how yeah. to sing, you you know, this not, is your man. Not what he did. Calling in to say hi. That's what you say. I mean, if you're going to do it, I don't do it. My wife would say, "Who's this? Jim?" <laughs> is that you, Jim? <laughs> no, like, it's your husband, no, Matt. You're like, who's Jim? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um yeah, that he was that was weird, but I you know what I really am liking these town hall things. I was I used to laugh about them with the Democrats. Yeah. Since they're obviously avoiding any sort of conflict with each other, yeah. any sort of contact. But what at all. I do like is you finally get to hear some some positions. Well, they're not being interrupted, hear, right? right? Yeah. And uh, so last night was Rubio, Cruz, and uh, Mr. Carson. Wanna, you want to hear some Ben Carson? Yeah. I find I've, he had he had he was talking about. Uh, let me see the the cut the sheet there real quick, Ben. Ben Carson. Was talking about this won't help me because I just put a, a sarcastic description on. Was he here. talking about his music because he likes Baroque music? No, he's a classical guy. He was talking about how we need to help each other. Okay, how society? Yeah, way back in the day, everyone just city, got together and helped people in time of need, and then all of a sudden the government got involved right. and took over. And and we it's uh, clip six, if you would, there, Ben. We the people 
have the responsibility to take care of the indigent in our society. It's not the government's job. If it was harvest time and the farmer was up in the tree picking apples and he fell out and broke his leg, everybody pitched in and harvested his Good example. That's a great Somebody example. got killed by a bear. Everybody took care of their family. Not so, so good example. we have a history of wow. taking care of each other. He, he, he always <laughs> seems to have like a good thought. And then somebody was impaled something on a weird, tree limb. Something weird happened. When someone gets eaten by a bear, the whole, the whole neighborhood pitches in. You well, know? you always have to have a second example. The second example is the, always, it's the like, hardest to come by. <sighs> if you haven't already got it in your mind and you have to like make one up, yeah. you'll, see, you'll notice 9 out of 10 researchers show that the second metaphor or example is always the less strong. Allegedly. Allegedly. It's always that one guy, that, that, that tenth guy, the nine out of ten that – Yeah. I mean he, there's the, the toothpaste surveys. The tenth uh-huh. dentist yeah, always, is always the one that doesn't agree. What's the tenth dentist? What's up with that guy? But like I don't – do you not like this? Because now you can hear what they want to say yeah. better. I mean I, I, it just seems like now you get to know the candidate a little bit more instead of, well, hold on. Trump said this. So Trump and Cruz are going at it. Yeah. Trump's threatening to sue Cruz. Yeah. Cruz is like, bring it on. Do it. Bring it on. Yeah. And, they, and I think Trump was going to – or Cruz was going to sing Trump a song. Something like that. Yeah. Lull Some him serenade, yeah. And so that could – I mean that's got to be a first where two candidates are suing each other. Maybe. Or threatening a lawsuit, allegedly. We always add the word allegedly. There has been legal action taken. Um, this is getting crazy. And then we got to talk about Apple. Are you going to talk about Apple in your news? We can. Uh, Apple, actually, I'll talk about it uh, later on the show, but let's okay. talk about it now. The, the, the FBI is trying to get into one of the phones from the, one of the San Bernardino yeah. shooters. But you know how that is, right? I mean, it's, you've got like nine chances to get the, the code right or it totally erases the, yeah, the, the phone. Way, the way the iPhone is set up, if you type it in the passcode ten times wrong, it'll lock up. Yeah. And then you have to go through some other measures to, to open it back up. The FBI wants that default taken away right they also want a program set up so they can just keep putting in passcode combinations until they break it there there's four it's a four digit code which means there's ten thousand combinations well and they, i think they only got to zero 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 one zero 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 two zero 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 three all the way up to nine and now they've only got one more shot yeah so like Ugh! So they're asking. It for, wasn't any of them. They're asking for nine. Apple to help them break into the phone, and, not, and yeah. Apple's like, "If we do that, then we, that's given. An, it's opening a door that will allow you to possibly do this in the future, FBI, mm-hmm. but also allow bad guys an opportunity because they said if you if you have a door, anybody can walk through it. All they have to do is figure out how to open it. Right. It, it's it's right. it's difficult to uh, to figure it out. We have some cuts from. Uh, from Apple. Well, and one of the reasons this is interesting um, is because they could have done it all without anyone knowing. They could have. Clip five. But now that this is this is Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. The only way we know how to do that is to encrypt it. Why is that? It's because if there's a way to get in, then somebody will find the way in. There have been people that suggest that we should have a back door. But the reality is if you put a back door in, that back door is for everybody, for good guys and bad guys. Hmm. It's a back door on the front door, really. Really. And and they're saying they do that, then all of a sudden people stop buying. It's people who are are concerned about security for their personal phones. They'll stop buying iPhones. They'll go buy something else. Well, I know, but they'll just go to the next phone that will also be pushed on by the FBI to have a back door. But the FBI says, why should we be? Uh, why should U.S. companies be creating products that criminals 
can get away with crime because they know that all their secret communications are secure, so the gov- they, they can't ever mm. be found out. It's like you lock, they, they, they give the, the idea of locking the trunk of a car, and now the police can't get in it. Yeah, I mean, like if yeah, if Chevy had built a tr- car trunk that was inaccessible, yeah. and you that you need a back door, but once you have the back door, everyone's going to go through back door. Yeah. Well, the criminals will, I guess. So That's it's, the it, it's it's an interesting discussion, one that will continue, but I'm not <sighs> sure what the answer. Will you know be what for else it, so. seems interesting to me? This seems like uh, kind of a, a a conservative legal problem that because it seems like it would be business owners that would not want to have to do this, Mm -hmm. but also security-minded people. And a lot of that is seems like the GOP. Yeah. Big into business, big into catch the criminal, let out all the information. Right. Seems like a a major conundrum for the GOP. Maybe it's not. We'll have to see. Hey, um, today we've got a great guest. (laughs) Captain Ronald Fry will be joining us. Uh, He has written a book called Hammerhead Six. How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadly Pesh Valley. It is way cool because he's going to talk to us. These are Green Berets, you know. They're, they're a lot like this show. They're high-performing. Well, they're, nothing like this show. Nothing like this show. But they are Green Berets. But he's going to teach us how they went in in the most dangerous valley in Afghanistan. They held – and grew a relationship with the people from Afghanistan and used unconventional war methods. It's really a phenomenal uh, lesson for all of us about how maybe understanding might actually be more valuable than ammunition many times in a war zone. And uh, it's a fascinating story, so stick with us. It's really a story about leadership. And so we'll be getting to Captain Ronald Fry in a minute. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's going on? Thanks, Matt. Senator Ted Cruz tore into fellow Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump and Senator Marco Rubio at a South Carolina press conference on Wednesday while simultaneously patting his own campaign on the back for taking the high road. Kind of an interesting twist there. Falsehoods have been have, have no place in American politics, the Texas senator said, calling out both Rubio and Trump for being liars after Trump called him a liar the day before. So kind of a kindergarten <laughs> elementary school type fight where everyone's calling each other liars. To emphasize this point about the presidential race's lack of ethics, Cruz then brandished a cease and desist note from the Trump lawyers, alleging allegedly sent his campaign after using political uh, archival footage of Trump in an attack ad from yeah. an interview on Fox News where he said he was pro-choice. Here's the here's tr- uh, Ted Cruz talking about the cease and desist order. So Mr. Trump, you have been threatening frivolous lawsuits for your entire adult life. So Donald, I would encourage you, if you want to file a lawsuit challenging this act, claiming it is defamation, file the lawsuit. And I understand if a candidate has a record like Donald Trump's, how he could consider anyone pointing to his actual record being defamation. Cruz contends there's no way that repeating someone's own words could be defined as defamation. (laughs) We'll see what happens there. A new national NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, Ted Cruz taken over the lead over Donald Trump. Cruz 28% while Trump closely trails him at 26%. In a new South Carolina Monmouth University poll, Trump holds a 35 to 19% advantage over Ted Cruz. Hmm. So when South Carolina is up nationally, Trump's a little down. Cruz is taken over. So we'll see. Uh, president Obama expected to make a historic trip to Cuba in the next month, becoming the first sitting U.S. president to visit the country in more than 80 years. The president 
president planning to visit March 21st before he flies on to Argentina, according to sources with knowledge of the plan. Mm. So that's interesting. That's very interesting. We're continuing to normalize relations there. Of course, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, not fans of the plan, <laughs> as they are sons of Cuban immigrants. Cubanos. <laughs> uh, Google CEO Sondar Pichai uh, spoke out in support of Apple's refusal to comply with federal court order to assist FBI mm. in unlocking the iPhone owned by one of the San Bernardino shooters. The Google CEO forcing company says forcing companies to enable hacking could compromise user privacy and would set a troubling precedent. Well, then you'd only be able to get your phone from your country. Certain people would not want to buy American-made phones because... Which is why some people use Blackberries because they're made in Canada. Interesting. Oh, especially like Ted Cruz. a lot of the federal government. They still use BlackBerry phones. Because uh-huh. Let's not even bring up Hillary Clinton's use of BlackBerry. That's right. Um, and this one, the CEO of a Los Angeles hospital said he paid $17,000 in Bitcoin to uh, computer hackers who use malware to lock the facility's computer network down. Alan Sefanek, CEO of Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center, said that the paying the ransom was the quickest way to get the hospital system up and running again. The hospital first noticed problems with the system February 5th, and the network was fully restored by the 10th. The hackers initially demanded $3.4 million, but later accepted a lower fee. The uh, hospital administrator said the patient care was not affected, and there had been no evidence that patient information had been compromised, mm. but they couldn't. They were turning patients away because they couldn't use their systems oh, man. as they were locked up in this this hijacking of their, their computer network. Sheesh, so you, you pay them Bitcoin and they go away. That's But that's just extortion. That is. Some of uh, the FBI is looking <sighs> into it, but I don't know. See what they can find. We'll see who. Now they're going to make every other company open up their stuff. Hey, uh, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we will have um, hopefully Captain Ronald Fry will be joining us. He is the author of the book Hammerhead Six. Uh, which tells the story about um, Green Berets in Afghanistan using unconventional methods to win, uh, basically, uh, the battle over Afghanistan's deadly Pesh Valley. Um, It's amazing when you hear what they did. It's actually understanding and building relationships with the the natives from Afghanistan and in the Pesh Valley area instead of just forcing them, going to war. Stick with us. Interesting understanding about leadership. And uh, power. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I thank God for my life. For the stars and stripes. May freedom forever fly. Let it ring. Salute the ones who die. The ones that give their lives. So we don't have to sacrifice. All the things we love. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, honored to have uh, with us today author Captain Ronald Fry. He is the author of the book Hammerhead Six, How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadliest or Deadly Pesh Valley. The Pesh Valley is uh, nicknamed the Valley of Death. And this unit, however... Um, has has saw some pretty uh, unprecedented success in that valley. Captain Ronald Fry was the leader of a Green Beret Special Forces unit, and uh, the the unit's name was Hammerhead Six. But they used unconventional methods. We appreciate you, Captain, being here, Captain Ronald Fry. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And talk to us about. Um, I mean, you, you, this is the valley. This this Pesh Valley now is the one we've heard so much about. 
um, because because of the, like the movie and the, the the book, I believe, Lone Survivor, where one man left, lost how many people in his battle? So they were a team of four, and three of the four were killed uh, in a firefight, and then another nineteen special operators were killed trying to rescue him. Oh. And this very valley, which is now so hostile, everybody has heard so much about. You you were there in that very same space, but your team, you somehow managed to make it different. How? Well, you know, it's interesting. The Pech Valley was known from, I mean, hundreds of years ago. I mean, even the Afghans, it's, it's legendary for them, is the Russians were never able to control it. Um, the British were never able to control it. The Taliban wasn't able to control it. I mean, these are wild <laughs> tribesmen. You're not controlling this area. Yeah, no, they're, they're very independent and, and, and fierce fighters. And, uh, you know, we knew that after the Taliban had been defeated, that al-Qaeda had a training camp in there. And there was a lot of bad guys that had just taken sanctuary there. And we tried a lot of different methods that the U.S. had and, and had no success in penetrating that valley to get those guys. And so we were given the, the mission to do an experiment and go live with the people and work with them and build an army from the local villagers to basically accomplish that same wow. that goal. But you were – you're an elite special forces A-team, Green Beret – bad to the bone, trained to the core, and then they say, hey, go, go in bed basically with the, the, uh, the, the locals, basically. Hang out, get to know them, be their friend. You might need ammo when you need it. I mean, <laughs> shoot when you have to. Yeah. But other than that, use unconventional methods, which include what? So unconventional, warf- unconventional warfare by definition is working by, with, and through the indigenous population. So from all the special operations – Everybody's great at shooting. Everybody's yeah. great at those direct action missions. But the niche that the Green Berets have is actually working with guerrillas, either creating a guerrilla army oh, wow. or working with the locals to yeah. basically, you know, so a 12-man team can lead two or 300 indigenous soldiers in a very economic, efficient, and, uh, and effective uh, group. So going there was kind of the core of what special forces do, but nobody had done it like we were about to do it for like 20, oh, yeah. 30 years. And and you and and just to, I guess, prove the point, you did it. You were successful. And what happened? What was the outcome that had never been seen before? So the so the the biggest outcome was those people actually accepted us. So they viewed me as the captain of these Americans, as in some way as a king or a warlord. Yeah. And in another way as their guest. And so we actually incorporated ourselves into their society, helped them adjudicate like internal struggles. And then worked with them to actually deny sanctuary to the enemy in that valley. Because they didn't want them there either, and they didn't want all this pro- all these problems. Yeah. I mean, they, these people were causing them problems. Right. Um, but, you know, they're always fighting each other, so that's just kind of mm-hmm. par for the course for them. But for us to come in there and say, hey, look, we'll, we'll work with you. We'll create a certain level of stability, but we want to do it on your terms with mm. your local tribal customs. Yeah. And let's work together and make this a place better for your kids. And what, and I guess it's interesting because you didn't go in over them where you could have just tried to take position. Yeah. I mean you had the bigger guns. That is correct. But So you really kind of went in almost submissive but strong. Yes. And, and you know what's, what's interesting is even when we were going in there, we didn't fully understand how we were going to win these people over. Yeah, sure. And the first – you know, all the village villages have a council called a shura. And it will be the senior guys from, from the village. And then the valley will all submit one or two people from each village to a 
Shura for each district or area. Yeah, like a council, area council. Yeah, it was very, <clears throat> very traditional. And uh, the first council we had, I got an inspiration. Like they asked, you know, how long are you going to be here? Like what is your role here? Yeah. And I remember just saying, you know what? We're here for as long as you need us here. Like we're here to help you secure your valley so that your kids and grandkids can have a better place. Interesting. And our goals and your goals are aligned. So when you don't need us here, we'll, we'll be gone. And to see the shock on their faces that, well, this is a guy we can work with. Right. It well, was and, interesting. Well, and you're bringing up their grandchildren. I mean, their children and their – like you're saying this is about your future. This isn't about us. We're not going to be here. Yeah. We want to give it back to you. Get out of here. And those are institutions they understand. Yeah, like it's all about clans and family mm-hmm. and tribes. And so when you talk about you know, every decision they're making today is about how it's going to affect their posterity. And that also includes – do they support the Taliban? Do yeah. they support the Americans? Because they're looking at not four or five years down the road. They're looking at how do these decisions affect my village and my family for wow. the next 30 years? Yeah. And um, and then I guess it's just really you have to then deliver. You have to have conversations, yes. get ideas, and then you have to go deliver on those ideas. How did you get – how many people were on your team? So I had a 12-man A team, okay. um, which is the traditional size of a special forces team. And then we actually had a platoon of infantry uh, started out from the 10th Mountain Division and then from the Marines that helped us secure our camp while we were getting it built up. Okay. And um, that was the smallest footprint the Americans ever had in that valley was just 60 Americans. And there was peace. And there was peace. Which is amazing. So, so what I guess for efficiency's sake, being unconventional, highly efficient. Yes. Yeah, very much. If you, know. you, if you could, I guess, forge those relationships. But yeah. it's also, I guess, you also don't have, you don't have an expert that can come in and tell you how to do it with every different, you know, tribe, every different group. You had to figure it out. Yeah, and that was that was the frustrating thing is you'd think, I mean, this is what I thought is you'd have anthropologists or somebody that right. could say, Experts. "Hey, guys, you're going into this area." I mean, my team was trained for Asia. We all speak spoke Asian language. Oh, really? <laughs> it was just that the, you know, after nine eleven, it was so overwhelmed that we got sent to the Middle East. So we're working with interpreters and stuff. Um, but we probably spoke 10 Asian languages mm-hmm. amongst the team. And so we kind of expected that the army would provide anthropologists or some sort of experts to tell us about these tribes, about their traditions, et cetera. And they didn't. And so we kind of went in there and we're kind of like figuring it out. And uh, Yeah, you, that is interesting. I guess now we probably have a lot of experts on Afghanistan. Yes. But, but yes, before, much more. But before not. So do, do you think the mere fact that you, you all had uh, kind of an Asian language, probably an Asian history background, did that help you? Because that's a very kind of Zen, calm, Buddha, Buddhist approach to – because this approach seemed very counter-American almost, yeah, anti, it, it non-American. Did. It did. I think, uh, to be honest, I think the biggest impact or the biggest thing that helped us see what we should do was the fact that we had uh, four return missionaries on the team. Did you really? Four LDS return missionaries yep. that are used to like knocking doors yeah. but not in Pesh. pesh. And, and, it was, and it was weird because, you know, I talk about it in, in the book, but there was a dinner we had where we had a police chief and some of his soldiers and some Americans and we're all eating on the roof of his house. And it's a full moon. It's, it's beautiful. And one of the infantry soldiers said, I've never done anything like this before. And my buddy, Scott Jennings, was like, what? He's like, well, eat with the locals and stuff. And he's like, oh, this is just like being a missionary. Oh my! God. And that's when I was like, oh, my gosh, this, this really this is, is like, like being that. a missionary. And so the whole building relationships of trust, yeah. trying to understand what makes those people tick before you try and share what you're trying to accomplish. Right. 
I think that drove a lot of how we were able to connect with the people and get them to, to not just – we weren't trying to manipulate them. Right. To get them to really feel that our goals of being there and their long-term goals were, were aligned and working with us was in their best interest. Oh, sure. Well, I mean and we're all children of God. Yeah. Like, I mean Muslims and Christians sitting down to have bread. Yeah. How, how symbolic but in the most dangerous valley, the valley of death. Yeah. I mean it, this is amazing. It was. It was very it was very um surreal. I bet. But you know the interesting thing about those people, the Pashtun tribe, you know they were only converted to Islam a few hundred years ago and oh. it was by the sword. Yeah. And so they consider themselves, you know, I'm 5000 years of Pashtun with all of those traditions of their tribe that were taken away. Yeah, and and secondary they're Muslim. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they some of their their traditions are so I don't want to say um common sense. Like if somebody wrongs them, they uh, they go by either the law of Moses or the gospel. They have the option of choosing revenge or choosing to forgive. Take your pick. And so it's, you know, so if you've wronged them and we give a couple examples where we were the ones on the wrong. Yeah. We had to go to the families and ask for forgiveness, knowing that they could choose that they wanted an eye for an eye or that they were going to take the higher road and forgive. Holy cow. And it, but at the same time, it was like it made sense. Yeah. Like it was very healing because you knew once they made that decision, it was, it was done. done. It was water under the bridge. Everybody gets to move forward. Well, and you gave them, I guess, agency. You gave them their choice. This is your – I guess that shows – yeah, that you're in. Yeah, no, it was, and I think the fact that we respected that that was their custom. Yeah. Instead of saying we're the Americans, we do it our way, really helped us get in with them. And when they knew that we really respected it, it um, it got us the inside track. And so some of the mistakes we made were actually opportunities for us to to build build that bridge between us yeah. and them. It's oh, and it's sad because it worked. Yeah, but it's yeah. It, it hasn't been replicated very often. I mean, they haven't been looking at it. It seems like this is a great lesson for everything that's going on today. Yeah, no, it was. You know, we knew it was unique back then, and then we all came home, and a lot of us. You know, some of the guys stayed in the army. Some of the guys got out, and then we look back over. You know, as the years went on, and you know, you got Restrepo, you got everything going on in the Korangal, you got Lone Survivor. You got Want It, which is the worst single battle in the entire war. That was the one I was thinking Which about, was yeah. just a couple miles up from our camp. And we would go do meetings up there with two Americans and 10 Afghans. We felt no threat. Right. And all that stuff happened in the same exact area where we had had such success. That's kind of what prompted the book is we had learned so many lessons and we thought we passed them on, but clearly we hadn't. Yeah. And so the book shares our, you know, our mistakes, our successes and stuff, because guys are going to be doing the same thing in Syria. Oh, no, totally. And, and they already are, right? Yeah, and, no. I mean, we're, and we're still doing the same thing in the United States. I mean, we still yes. don't get it, right? We still don't quite get how to, how to get into a close-knit tribal unit. I'm like thinking of Ferguson, Baltimore, even, yes. even you know, what's going on in Flint, or in, yeah, Flint, Michigan, where we still don't know how to fix certain problems that is by true. understanding where people are coming from. Let's let's come back more with Captain Ronald Fry. Again, the book is Hammerhead Six: How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadliest Pesh Valley. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. More right here on the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, Captain Ronald Fry, who uh, was a, a Green Beret captain over a unit with 12 Green Berets. Hammerhead 6 was the name of their unit, and um, he wrote a book called Hammerhead 6, How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadliest Pesh Valley. And uh, no uh, no combat death, no combat injury? A uh, couple injuries, no death. No death, which is really unheard of in this valley. Yeah, yes. I think we're the only unit that had that experience. I mean, will. amazing. And and when, during the break, you were telling me something that this wasn't like – this wasn't this wasn't just Americans trying to teach uh, Afghanistan uh, Afghanistanis what to do. This was this was Christians trying to trying to basically convince tribal Pesh. What do you call them? Yeah, Pashtuns. Pashtuns, who had already been oppressed by Muslims five hundred years ago or whatever, to fight against Pashtuns. Correct. Not to fight against Muslims, not to fight against some other tribe, but to fight against people in their own tribe that were members of the Taliban. That, that's right. That's right. And, and that's the difficult thing if you just – the concept of, you know, you got 12, you know, white, white Christian Americans, Americans showing up in this valley that, for one, they hate foreigners. Yeah. Um, that's the only time they unite is to Well, they've had foreigners. Russia there. They've had, I mean, this has gone on forever. Oh, yeah. I mean, even the, the old Afghan government was afraid to go into the Pesh Valley. Just, <laughs> I mean, it's, you Don't know, mess. we would joke about it. it's, it's, you know, people refer to Afghanistan as being the Wild West. This is like the wildest part of the Wild West. But, you know, for us to go in there and actually win them over and, can, and basically tell them, hey, look, our goals and your goals are aligned. We need you to help us fight against your cousin Johnny, mm. who's got the same religion, same ethnic ties, family ties, but his participation in the Taliban is bad for your family, your village, and your valley. And to get them to realize that what we were selling was better than what the Taliban was yeah. selling was a huge feat, but it, we proved that it was possible. Well, and then – and put on a uniform. We'll train you up and actually fight him. Yeah. That I was, mean that's even – and – that's huge. It, it was huge. And, you know, when we actually recruited, you know, we got the task that we had to we had to raise a local army. Well, some of our predecessors in Vietnam, they did the same thing. But sometimes the Viet Cong would get into that force. Next thing you know, you're training your enemy oh. and he attacks you from within. So one of our te- problems was how do we choose which guys to train? Because we didn't want to train a bunch of Taliban guys and then right. they used the opportunity to kill us. Right. And so we did one of those councils with all the elders. We told them this is this is what we're trying to do, but we can only do it with your support. So we want your sons, your nephews to work with us, people that we can trust, and they need to show up with their own guns, their own ammunition, and a letter from you. And oh my heavens. within a week we had 110 soldiers that came with weapons and letters from their from their fathers. Well and that were politically positioned to defend what yes. the status quo is. And so when they came there, they came there on an oath from their own father and village that they would fulfill their responsibilities with the Americans mm-hmm. for the betterment of the valley. And so we had guys that were committed not just to working with the Americans but for accomplishing what they viewed as the future of the Pesh Valley. Yeah. And so we had them totally bought in and, um, and those guys were fantastic. Oh, I bet. I mean – and I – are they still active? Do you know? Are they still fighting? Are they still? But or were they just overrun again? Well, some of them were incorporated in later years into the Afghan National Army, 
So we kind of had an irregular force of, I don't want to call them mercenaries. They were local fighters that we gave uniforms to and we led and trained. And eventually some of those would get incorporated into the, the, um, the national army out of Kabul. Um, and some of them in later years would be killed Mm. and some of them would, um, you know, would go the way of, you know, whatever. Just quit or, or I guess switch teams. But yeah. And, and I think that's part of the disappointment from us is what we did and, and the success we had wasn't picked up on, which like we talked about was the gist of writing the book was to pass on the lessons. Well, and this seems like leadership one oh one, right? This is, this is what leadership is, is winning them over one at a time, a conversation at a time, understanding their needs, helping them understand the opportunity and winning them over. I, but I guess then not everybody that not every Green Beret is a leader. I mean, they're a leader in military. They're a leader in fighting. They're a leader in, you know, being a tactical unit. But you got to also know how to lead people. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the in the U.S. Army or the U.S. Defense Department arsenal, the Green Berets are are trained and are the best at doing this. Mm-hmm. But not all are equal and not all see the vision. Yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. Same. You're yeah. all trained for months to go in and, and kind of build an army. Yep. From the locals. But being able to do it and say – I mean, and being able to do it this way without – with I, I mean, really, you're involving their heart. You're involving their purpose, their mission, their passion. Yeah. And, you know, going in and, and finding, you know, the Taliban or al-Qaeda, quite honestly, and just putting a bullet through their head, it's very tangible. It's very measurable. It's it's very, hey, that's what we're there to do. Yeah. It's, and Done. that's kind of what everybody wants to focus right. on. Our is to make that country a place where they could never exist again. And the only way we can do that is getting the Afghans to do it. <clears throat> much more difficult, much less measurable. Yeah. But long term, it's the only way that we're going to win over there. That's and, why. That's why the president keeps saying – you're not going to win this just military, militarily. You, you've got – it's a political thing. But really, this was – this is – you have to win it on the ground with the people. Yes. Because otherwise, the minute you're gone, someone else will pop up and take the seat of the one you just killed. And the that's, next, that's right. And I mean next. it seems like every time we smash a cockroach, it gets replaced by two. Yeah, that's right. And so unless we make it where the cockroaches don't want to go, you know, they'll always come right. back. And right. we, can, we can keep smashing them for the next 50 years, but they're never going to go away. What have you learned – because this – what have you learned as a leader? To me, this book really should be read by the leaders of companies, of organizations because this is about – this is about changing people, working with people. Yeah, and I, I think a couple of lessons I took from it that I apply in my own business um, and leading teams and stuff is for one, you have to – you do have to understand people don't want your goals pushed upon them. Yeah. They need to feel that what they're doing is 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 their goals. It's better for them. And so you you know, you don't manipulate, but you got to align the goals so people don't want to just work for a, you know, 10 bucks an hour and be your slave. Like you got to align it where people feel like their future is better working in that aspect. And the other thing is when you put out certain standards, you put out certain um direction that you're going to want and you run into tough decisions. I ran into some decisions that I look back on today and they were tough and we had to make decisions based on principles. And sometimes I thought personal risk was, was great, but they were the right decisions. Mm -hmm. And what I found immediately after that is the respect of the people that I was leading and the respect of the people that saw that I had taken a tough decision. All of a sudden you, you quadruple the respect they have. And now you have so much more capital to move the whole organization forward. And so in some ways, Accepting mistakes or accepting difficult situations 
and then making the tough decisions that might not be popular, might not be the easy ones, that's what defines a leader. Well, like going back to the family that one of your men have offended yeah. and be willing to take the eye for eye or replace the goat or whatever that's, Yeah, whatever you've done. But I guess too that's what – that that integrity, that character is what convinces everyone that you're legit. You, yes. you end up buying more trust. That's right. And, and knowing that we did not have to, we had the most guns in the valley. We had, you know, we had F-18s flying overhead. We did not have to apologize to the family when we had wronged them, but it was the right thing to do. And the Afghan soldiers we were leading, when they saw we were willing to be humble and abide by their culture and show that we put our money where our mouth was as far as we respect you people, yeah. it, it was the right thing to do. And that gained us so much respect and their willingness to follow us. And take a bullet for us. Oh yeah, was was greatly increased. That is huge. I mean, really, that that is, that's that's what we're lacking. I mean, I think we're we're trying to choose a president, and in the end, this is all we need. We need leaders that understand, that listen, that truly listen, that don't just listen yeah. because it's an election year, but that are there, that are listening and willing to throw themselves on the sword if they have to. Yeah, and, and not, don't tell us what we want to hear. Right. Tell us what we know is right and then show us that you're willing to sacrifice for what is right and that will make us want to follow. Oh, yeah. And All day long. That's a great – is that the major lesson? Give us what, – what's the one thing when people read the book um, – and again, the name of the book – and you got to go get the book for heaven's sakes. This is – I mean how often do you get to read so many cool stories but also so many leadership examples? Remember, the name of the book is Hammerhead Six, How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadly Pesh Valley. What's the number one thing you want us to take away, Captain? You know, one for the for the military and, and business leaders is if you put push put the mission and your people above all else, above yourself and your own career, you'll be successful. Um, the second one in in as far as unconventional warfare, as far as because all the conflicts we're dealing with right now, oh. this is the way to do it. Yeah, um, it's really we have to understand these people and we have to align our goals with them and make true allies, not just people that we need to use for a year or two while we accomplish our goals, but really make true grassroot allies with these people and they will be our friends for the next hundred years. Yeah. And that's what we need to be doing right now is not alienating these people, but finding the ones that are willing to fight with us, truly making them allies and take advantage of that. Yeah. And again, it's one tiny special forces unit from Draper. That's right. It's like, it's awesome. I mean, to me, that's what's so cool about it is we could totally... This is the new method of war, I think. This is the new way you change, especially like the Middle East. I guess this would have worked anywhere. In Vietnam? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny where you know our army is built to defeat another army. Yeah. That's what it's built for, and right. we need it for that right. because nobody's going to invade the United States because we have the best military in the world. But in most of the conflicts that we've ever experienced, even back to the first one we ever dealt with after the revolution – being the you know the war with the Barbary states, we used unconventional warfare and had a small group of Americans leading Get in. Arab yeah. troops, gr- Greeks, and all these people to fight the Tripolitans. And so we've used it effectively for the, for the history of our country, but we always forget, yeah. and, we, and we don't go back to it. Oh, good stuff. Again, thanks for being here. Thank you. This is huge, Appreciate huge, it. huge learning. Uh, Captain Ronald Fry, um, again, the book, Hammerhead Six. Go find the book, read the book, talk to people about it, uh, use it in your business. 
leadership, folks, it's it's this is real leadership, right? People could die uh, in the Pesh Valley, and uh, and yet safety was had by simply understanding one another. We'll take a break, folks. Come right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Aha! Is that not what... That's the key. Captain Ronald Fry just taught us. I mean, that's leadership 101. Sure, we can go in and just carpet bomb them. But you know what? You don't win anybody. You don't win a change in the hearts and the minds of people by just using force especially in the Middle East right now. And for anybody that tells you it's not going to work, it already has. In the book Hammerhead 6, it worked. They went in there, not one fatality. Not one, I mean, and they would go. I mean, there were times you still had to take on the enemy, right? But they were also able to get you know, tribal members to fight against their own tribe. Uh, who people that were were already members of the Taliban, but from their tribe. Can you imagine that? That is the equivalent of going into, you know, uh, it's it, and you saw it. We saw it in Ferguson. We saw it in Baltimore, where it was kind of the outsiders and the insiders in the fight, and there wasn't enough, you know, mixing and understanding and and sharing of what the real problems were. Even in Ferguson, you, you saw some of the leaders that were eventually brought in from the state, the state trooper, uh, the African-American trooper that went in and could create some safety for everybody involved. He did it. He went in and he became that change. We need more of that in our country. So when you're thinking about leadership, folks, think about a guy like Captain Ronald Fry. And when you're listening to the politicians, are these the people that really are going to be able to go in and understand you from your frame of reference? Have they really been doing this? Or do they just pop up around this time of year? Fascinating, fascinating stuff. We're going to take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, our goal is to help you get real information, real solutions to deal with your real-world problems Uh, One of those problems, by the way, is to lead a healthier life. And uh, Captain Ronald Fry just taught us that. We'll be right back, folks. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on the show to give you the information, the tools you need to lead healthier, happier lives. Man, last hour, if you didn't hear it, you got to go find it. Um, download it on our BYU Radio app or on iTunes. 
It'll be up later this afternoon. Incredible leadership example in Afghanistan. Um, but today, we, this hour, we've got another leadership tool where we're going to be teaching. Um, we're going to be teaching you how to be a super boss. I've been there. Why'd you look at me? I don't know. Like that was rude. Just super boss. Which is basically how exceptional leaders master the flow of talent by Sidney Finkelstein. And um, he's the author also of Why Smart Executives Fail. Yeah. And you're going to learn today. This is you are going to learn today. This is tough. It's like when when I came in and we decided we started kind of divvying up responsibilities amongst the producers. Yes. We have what, six? Six or, yeah. We're trying to say, okay, here's some strengths. Six and then Ben. Well, Ben, whatever. Ben just sort of pushes some buttons every once in a while. But, I'm on the bench. <laughs> on the bench. He is the bench. And, and trying to figure out where best to put people right. to, mag- to so that they can be successful and the show can be successful. And they want, you know, they might like it at first just, you know, being on the team, having a basic role. But then after a year, they all want more. They're just greedy. But they they want to grow. They want to develop. And then how do you develop? How do you encourage that? How do you try not to come in and squash any yeah. sort of... New ideas they may come up right. with, all that kind of stuff. That's involved, why so. I'm willing to eat ice cream. If Ben wants to make ice cream, make ice cream, I ben. think you're very brave. But then I'll, bring me some. I'll try it. And then make sure you don't get ice cream on the board. Because you don't know how clean of an environment this stuff is made in. Oh, I know. It's, it's made no. in his tub. It's made in, it's made in a, his tub in his dorm. My point exactly. Why, why are we eating things out of his tub? <sighs> Ugh. Not good. Not good. But I'm, I'm granted use like the scouring powder before. Yeah, so it tastes like. So it's kind vomit. of chalky a little bit. A little, it's it's a totally clean, guys. What's, what's totally this, clean. What's this green gritty thing on the ice cream? That's common. It's got flavor crystals. <laughs> <laughs> I can taste your flavor crystals. Hey, um, interesting, interesting news day. Like we we talked about it last hour. This is a big deal. What's going on? Uh, 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 Bernie Sanders is is basically caught up to Hillary Clinton in Nevada. Yes. They're in a dead heat. The Clintonites have got to be freaking out. Now, she's still way ahead in um, in South Carolina. Yeah. But, you know, things can change. Absolutely. So that's big. And uh, as we've talked about on this show, we've had guests on polling can sometimes be off. Don't try. I know. So he could, he could actually be way ahead. Could be. Or way behind. But also, speaking of polling, Theodore Cruz ahead, pulled ahead in the first poll, the Wall Street Journal. He's NBC ahead poll, nationally. Nationally. Behind in South Carolina. Well, sure. Quite a bit. But that's never happened. No. This is exciting. Don't you, aren't you excited? Or. You don't seem excited. The media groups that are sponsoring these polls maybe kind of tweak the numbers so it looks more exciting so they can sell more ads. But I have a hard I have a belief that I'm not sure that NBC would love Theodore Cruz to. I think at the moment they're just trying to sell commercials. I think what they want Theodore Cruz to do is to quit singing to that his would... wife. See, the, the other the my problem with him singing is it wasn't like he didn't really 
just break out in song. You wanted him to just I wanted commit. Some, there need to be something embarrassing. If you're going to do that, if you want to endear yourself to a public, do something embarrassing. But instead, he was all timid, and he didn't quite commit to it. And so I was going to cut the sound so we could play it, but then I heard it, and it really wasn't worth it because it was just sort of, eh. But, it was just sort of yeah. a half effort. He needed to really commit to it no. and just no. sing, no. and it would be horrible, and everyone no. would be like, Ted okay. Cruz can't sing, and, who, you, and nobody can sing. Who you can't is the sing. last person that you know in, in high office hmm. to sing? Uh, President Obama. Period. So anything he sings is going to be co- you know connected to Obama, and I, I can think of two times he sang – and one of them was Amazing Grace, I think in South Carolina, wasn't yes. it? So After that church shooting. Ted Cruz isn't going near that. No. <laughs> or singing. He was not going to do it. But, I mean, I think it's a great way to get more women to vote for it because some people say that they're creeped out by Ted. Some of the women are. Grandpa Munster? They just think he's – he just – but I think they like Rubio more. Rubio had a good showing last night. But in the end – don't sing. Just tell us your positions. You and, were talking before with our last guest, yes, who went into Afghanistan, yeah, and con- and convinced local leadership that us U.S. soldiers are here for your good. We're here to help you to have longevity and prosperity. He comes in, respects their culture, yeah. respects their ways. Explains to them we're here to help, truly help, and not just say we're going to help and then do something that's obviously not here to help. Right. And then you said, "Is there a pre- look at presidential candidates? Is there anyone that can do that?" I don't think I said that. I mean, Something I, I, close I, to it. Yeah, I, like it was like rhetorical. Like generally, can can our leaders do this? Are our leaders very good? at are this? Are you going to ask? Are you going to answer the question? I don't think any of them do it. I don't know if they've demonstrated it. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know I, if they've been called upon to yeah. demonstrate it. So. I, I think, sir. I mean, I think one. I think honestly, one by one, they could probably do it. Just you know, one by one. But I don't know that they all have. I know somebody personally that's actually done surgery with Ben Carson, and he says he's phenomenal. He is incredible, and he just doesn't present well on TV. Well, and he's very soft spoken and he talked about that in his debate last night. He's soft spoken because and his eyes are closed. It gets the kids to listen. He he'd have well, a lot of groups of kids come in and when he's soft spoken they're all listening. Then he needs to adjust his performance to the audience cuz kids aren't the audience well, anymore. Or or we need to finally realize that that being the loud bombastic one may not make the best president. So that's why he's an interesting deal. Here's the problem I think the GOP are battling. Until they have three people drop out, nobody. Or three be, more? Yeah, three more drop mm-hmm. out. And nobody's going to beat Donald Trump. No. because They you, have to consolidate. You keep splitting the vote and there's just uh, – yeah. They can't top, you can't You can't approach his numbers because everyone else is still thinking of all these other candidates right. who probably aren't going to have much uh, effect on what's going to happen. Yeah. And in fact, Rubio, by the way, just got Governor Haley. Um, what's her name? Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley's. She said, "A vote for Marco Rubio is a vote for a better America," or something like that. That was the endorsement you want in South Carolina, right. and and he got it, which I and, think may have completely permanently deflated the Bush group. Yes, because they, she she was on stage with the Bush family. Yeah. Oh, a couple of days ago, and then she goes ahead and endorses Marco. Yeah. 
Which may not amount to anything because he's currently trailing both Cruz and Trump. Well, except for now you've got the biggest name in South Carolina. We'll the see. most powerful he might be able GOP to, leader in South Carolina. He's only a few points behind Cruz, so we'll see if he can catch him. Oh, this will be interesting. And um, But for the rest, maybe it ought to be after South Carolina. Let's just – Call it quits? Just put everything back in the wagon. Do you think Bush will call it quits with that much money? He's no. sitting on a big pile of cash that he thinks he could spend. Well, and- no. I think he'll. I think he'll try to spend it, but I think what we're also seeing is the big donors. They're backing out. Yes. Except for if if Rubio can do well, they might. I can see him turning it back on. Hmm. What do you do? Politics ain't it great? I saw him repeat the same line three times yesterday, though. What? He's talking about how his foreign his foreign policy experience. Oh yeah, and how he's got he, more than anybody. He, he in the race. sat for five years. He sat on two committees, and that gives him all this foreign policy experience. And I saw a a a, uh, a town hall type situation, a rally that he gave, like two rallies, and then uh, during the town hall last night, and he said the exact same wording, the exact same way. He needs to really be aware of that because that's going to haunt him. Well, where it'll haunt him, yeah, is if he really it'll only haunt him if he goes up against Hillary Clinton. Right. Well, no, the foreign policy part, but the part about you have your stump speech and you keep repeating the exact same words. You need to figure out a way yeah. to say it differently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just that robot thing that came up with sure. with Chris Christie. But yeah, the foreign policy he runs up against <laughs> against Hillary Clinton. That's not going to. This is be the weirdest comparable. race ever. Yes, it will. Because yes, very much so. The neat thing about I think what people like about Donald is that he doesn't always say the exact same thing, except if you listen to him, he really does. Oh, he does. But he also can make up stuff. Yes, on the fly. The, and it doesn't seem to matter. And now he's mad that Theodore Cruz has made up stuff. Well, and Theodore allegedly did, he didn't. He's, he, he's, he he pulled the right. video and he he doesn't even cut it. You just run him. Uh, what in two thousand eight? Yeah. You have yeah. Trump saying he's pro-choice. Yeah. Now he's not. Yeah, but see, that's it's different now. <laughs> so he's suing him for using clips of Trump actually saying things. <laughs> it's really odd, really odd. It's probably hard to, yeah. It's not defamation if you said it. Hmm. Okay, so uh, good luck with all of that. But again, we're going to have leadership 101 um, and be talking about how to be a super boss, how to get the people that you lead to to actually grow to use their talents to maximize to get in for heaven's sakes but uh, first let's get to the headlines terry what's going on around the rest of the world thanks matt supreme court justice antonin scalia's eldest son called conspiracy theories about his 79 year old father's death a hurtful distraction in an interview eugene scalia said it's i think a distraction from the great man and his legacy at a time when there's so much to be said about that and to help people even more fully appreciate that his father's legacy he added our family just had has no doubt he died of natural causes and we accept that we're praying for him we ask others to accept that and pray for him presidential contender donald trump was among many who publicly discussed the circumstances surrounding scalia's death including a report that he was found with a pillow over his head scalia's family has said that they did not want an autopsy performed on him and that he had a history of chronic health problems so don't don't get into the conspiracy uh, theories. Let yeah. it go, says the family. President Obama will not attend Justice Antonin Scalia's funeral on Saturday, according to the White House. Instead, he and First Lady Michelle Obama will go to the uh, Supreme Court on Friday to pay their respects as the justice lies in repose. Vice President uh, Joe Biden and his wife Jill will attend Saturday's ceremony when Chief Justice William Rehnquist died in 05. 
George W. Bush attended the funeral and eulogized him. No official reason has been given for Obama's planned absence. The hmm. Homeland Security Department is capable of overriding iPhone security, a New York case in the fall of last year revealed. In a brief exchange with attorneys during a hearing in October, Judge James Orenstein said that he found testimony in another case that the Homeland Security Department, quote, is in possession of technology that would allow its forensic technicians to override the passcode security feature on the subject's iPhone and obtain data contained therein. That revelation, which went largely unnoticed at the time, seems to undercut the government's central argument that it needed Apple to unlock a protected iPhone. Currently, Apple's in a dispute with the federal government as it refuses to aid in the processing of un- uh, process of unlocking San, Bernardin- San Bernardino shooter Syed Rizwan Farouk's iPhone. Apple CEO Tim Cook on why they make iPhones to be so secure. On your smartphone today, on your iPhone, there's likely information, there's financial information, there are intimate conversations with your family or your coworkers, uh, there's probably business secrets, mm-hmm. and you should have the ability to protect it. There you go. That's why it needs to be secure. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we shouldn't even need to ask. But apparently, this judge is saying Homeland Security already has the technology to do this. So why are they asking Apple to do it? Just go ahead and do it. It seems like there's some yeah. sort of power play at hand. Yeah, they're they're pushing them. They're, they're, yeah, interesting. The maybe government's they're... really frustrated that these technology companies are not working with them. So maybe this is just this is maybe the back door into getting tech companies to bend. Could be. Get Apple to, to cave, and then everybody else will follow. Maybe that's maybe that's the plan. <laughs> According to the AP, American airstrikes on ISIS oil depots, refineries, and cash vaults have put a serious pinch on the caliphate's ability to pay out decent wages and perks. Oh, the, boy. The Islamic State group has slashed salaries across the region, asked uh, Raqqa residents, that's where that's the kind of the headquarters of ISIS is Raqqa, uh, residents to pay utility bills in black market American dollars. It is now releasing detainees for a price of $500 a person. They're trying to raise revenue. The extremists who once bragged about minting their own currency are having a hard time meeting expenses thanks to coalition airstrikes and other measures that have eroded millions from their finances since last fall. Having built up a loyalty among militants with good salaries and honeymoon and baby bonuses, the groups has stopped providing even the smaller perks, free energy drinks and snicker bars to soldiers. Um, maternity leave, Kay, we're going to need to cut back on that. And for you suicide bombers. Um, <laughs> Only half the yield on that bomb. It, that's we right. Can't, we can't, we can't put, you know, cut back on the explosives. We can't guarantee you will die in the bomb. <laughs> we can't afford enough explosives. Yeah. Oh, my heavens. Now, there's been video of oh. U.S. airstrikes where they attack a building and all of a sudden... They go, if you watch here just for a moment, and you'll see, and you'll see like bills, like paper flowing through the air because it was a cash depository that they oh. blew up. So millions of dollars just evaporated in explosions. Who blew up the depository? And so they're blowing up all their cash reserves. Oh, boy. And so now they can't pay people any money to keep them around anymore. <laughs> At least that's what, what they're see, saying. That's the why story we're going to talk about better bosses. And this is the Associated Press reporting out of. Britain, I believe, is where this reporting came from. So Hmm. kind of interesting. Interesting news, folks. See, this is why if you want your caliphate to actually happen, you need a better boss. We're talking about super bosses up next, folks. How exceptional leaders master the flow of talent, their people. And uh, Sidney Finkelstein will be joining us. He's going to uh, be teaching us about 
the great, really, art and skills behind being an exceptional leader. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What do Ralph Lauren, Bill Walsh, George Lucas, and Mary Kay Ash have in common? Besides being really big names in the business world and being known as exceptional leaders, there is one thing that distinguishes them from their peers. It is their ability to groom talent and train a new generation of leaders. They fit into a new category of people that Dr. Finkelstein, our next guest, likes to call super bosses. Dr. Sidney Finkelstein is here with us. He is the um, Stephen Roth Professor of Management and Faculty Director for the Center of Leadership at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. He's also um, the author of the book Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Great to be on with you, Matt. Honored to have you, and uh, I always I just love to learn um, – from people that are uh, that that study and study and study information that the rest of us don't really pay much attention to, talk to us about a super boss. That's a a term you've come up with. What is a super boss? You know, a super boss is uh, we all we've all had bosses. So a super boss is a boss that actually helps us get better, helps us accomplish more than we ever could have done otherwise. It's the ideal boss, and in the process, the boss gets better. But we get much better as well, and it accelerates our career, creates opportunities for us. Well, and right now, everybody listening, they might have a super boss. It might not be their current boss. But, I mean, somewhere in their life, they've probably run into or experienced somebody that just stretched them to be better. Yeah, and I think that's uh, I think that's right. The more I talk to people about this idea about super bosses, the more people relate, and they always reflect back on the various bosses uh, that that everyone's had. And you know, sometimes they're good ones, sometimes they're not so good ones. And occasionally, you get this this super boss, this person that really helped your career and really uh, cared enough about you to help you get better. Mm. It's a fantastic thing. What what made you want to focus on this? I mean, as a as a business professor, you, I mean, you, you could focus on any topic. Why the super boss? Yeah, it's a great question. I I, uh, I actually noticed the pattern in a couple of industries that I found really fascinating. So, for example, if you look at the NFL, and I'm a big football fan, yeah. and you look at head coaches and the trees of talent that. Uh, some have talked about in the past. It turns out that Bill Walsh, the former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, was just a giant developer of talent. You go look at many of his assistant coaches. Uh, they, they went on to become head coaches. In fact, you know, this past season that just concluded in the NFL, out of the 32 head coaches, 20 came from the tree of talent of Bill Walsh. Wow. So I noticed that. I thought, wow, it's an unbelievable thing. Who else is out there? Who is doing this? And how is that happening? And that kind of got me rolling on this whole question. No, that and that is so true. And then it's interesting too because a lot of them also became super coaches, super bosses themselves, right? They they've almost learned how to keep growing the talent. Yeah, that's the ideal thing, you know, when you have that special boss that teaches you, that helps you, and then you go off and get a bigger job yourself. Are you going to pay it back to 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 others? Are you going to help them get better? And you know, if you have an organization loaded with people like this, you're going to win a lot more than you otherwise would. Yeah. Is that not the competitive advantage? It seems like everyone can, I mean, and they do in the NFL too, for example, they, they can take your coach, they can pay them more 
but you can't necessarily just make somebody a super boss. No, you uh, you can't. It doesn't just happen without uh, without a lot of a lot of effort. But the truth is, I think Matt, anyone can become a super boss in any walk of life. Even if you're you know a supervisor in a in a factory, if you're running an office or you're uh, uh, you're a sales manager, whatever you happen to be, I think anyone could become a super boss. You have to want to do it. You have to think about it. But it's not impossible to do it. It's not, it's not rocket science, yeah, but right. it is a little bit of hard work. Talk about what is – like what are the strategies? What are the behaviors that a super boss might manifest that, that, that's different than just the average boss? Well, it starts with uh, where you get the talent from in the first place. Super bosses go out of, uh, out of their shell looking for talent. They're talent spotters. They're always on the lookout. And you know, there's a great story, again, about Bill Walsh. He went out to, um, to scout a really highly touted quarterback – and the quarterback was uh, was practicing and trying out and throwing the ball to uh, a second stringer on the team who was his co- his roommate in college. And there was something about that second stringer that really got Bill Walsh's attention. He goes back. He doesn't he doesn't draft the 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 big name quarterback. He drafts in the eighth or tenth round the uh, the guy he was throwing the ball to. And you know who that turned out to be? Who it was Dwight Clark? Who oh, was it really? Yeah, the catch. <laughs> The catch, exactly. So they're looking for talent in unusual places. They're always on the hunt for talent, and, they're, and they think about it that way. And then once you have those people, once you have people with that type of potential, the question really becomes how could you help them get better? And they do it by motivating them. They do it by teaching them. And they, you know, they also do it by inspiring. It's, uh, it's one of these soft words, but it really means something. You know, they get people all fired up and energized. And, you know, Ralph Lauren, another one of the super bosses, you know, the fashion king, he used to tell his people, you know, everybody follows us. We set the standard. We're the ones that they all look to to see what's going on in the world of fashion. And that, and that, you got to believe that. You got to be authentic with that. But that so gets people so so energized, so inspired that they want to just run through a brick wall to make everything happen for that super boss, and they get better in the process. Yeah, and I guess if you have the talented people, um, and and the, and they're inspired, then something special can come from that. It seems like some bosses are. They might be afraid to hire people more talented than themselves. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, uh, I think that I think that does happen. Um, insecurity is a real damaging uh, element of uh, human nature, and certainly in organizations. But if you just step back for a minute and think about it, if you hire smarter people, better people, and they're working for for you, don't you think you're going to be able to perform more effectively? Right. You're going to hit your own targets, your own goals. Um, that's not a bad thing. They're going to make you look better. If you hire a bunch of people that are weaker, that uh, you know, don't really match up to you, you might feel like you know more than they do. But how are they going to help you accomplish what you need to get accomplished? Right. Even if they move on, right? Even if, they, even if they're only there for five years because they're so exceptional, they're picked away, you, you, still, you still have them as a relationship. You still can have them as a peer. It's powerful. Yeah, you can. You you really, and you want to work that that network. And this is not, you know, a, a network that you're just talking to people every now and then. You look at, uh, say, uh, Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. Of course, so many great talents have gone out, off of that show, become you know world famous people. Uh, you just look at late night TV as one example with Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers. Well, guess who the executive producer mm. is of both of those shows? Turns out to be Lorne Michaels. So even though he's lost in quotes great talent. He's figured out a way to continue to work with them and benefit from those relationships. Interesting. And and then still, and maybe he's the executive producer because he's still seen by these mega talents as inspiring and able to get yeah. more out of them. 
Yeah. I mean, I that's, that's exactly right. That's power, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, we all we all do whatever it is we do in our careers and our jobs. But we're talking a little bit here of, of legacy, if, uh, uh, you know, if you really think about it, Matt. And legacy is a great thing. We all do what we do. But imagine you can look back at your career at any point in time and you can say, wow, I really helped other people do more than they ever thought possible. Did Jimmy Fallon think he was going to you know, be the successor to Johnny Carson right. uh, when, he, when he was, you know, a 20-year-old trying out for, uh, for SNL? I, I don't think so. But, wow, and when you look at what, what Lorne Michaels was able to help happen, take a great talent and accelerate their careers, it's, it's pretty exciting. Mm. It's, um, I guess part of it is their ability to, to, to see the talent, but then I guess it's also their ability to, to raise up the talent, to, to push back. What have you learned about that? What, what do they, how do they hire people differently, and, and how do they actually maximize the talent of their people? Yeah, so, they, the, so they're definitely looking for what I call diamonds in the rough, those, uh, those people that um, maybe not everyone else is, is looking for, and they're always on the lookout, uh, lookout for talent. But what they really do on a day-to-day basis is really uh, remarkable. They, their uh, super bosses will roll up their sleeves and work with their with their staff members, their team members, their employees. Um, not every day, you know, doing that because they have their own work to do. But they get close to the word that so many people get nervous about. You know, what the word is it's micromanagement. You don't want to go over that line. Right. But what is wrong with actually engaging closely with the people that work for you? And in fact, super bosses do that. You, you know what it's like. It's uh, it, it's like that the old way that people used to learn how to do whatever it is they were going to do in their career. It's called an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. and it's the, way, it's the way the world of work operated for centuries, and it's gone by the wayside. And I think what super bosses have, have done is they've recognized that there are, there are elements of this apprenticeship approach to helping other people get better, this close hand-to-hand working, this constant uh, teaching and motivating that, uh, that really can be beneficial. I think it's a great thing. Mm. And... Um... I, I, that's there's something too when you have to mentor somebody when because you you actually might systematize your thinking too a little bit and so so you're making you're actually reevaluating what you do do every day to, in order yeah. to better instill it into others or share it with others. It's a it's a great point because it does it does sharpen you. You know I've often said and of course I'm a teacher I'm a professor uh, so it's kind of the thing I do. But I've often said that anyone who teaches someone else about whatever whatever the material is, whatever the idea is, they're going to get much better at it themselves by the mere fact that they are teaching. It's really a remarkable thing. And so this is also happening for, happening for super bosses. And, and then you add one other element that I, I love about what super bosses do, and I'm sure many people listening will, will know if their boss does this or will maybe wish their boss did, does, did this, but they, the super bosses customize how they motivate and interact with the people on their team. Mm. It's one thing to talk about, you know, leadership styles and all this type of stuff. And everyone's different. Everyone, you know, we all have our personal style of how we operate. But what super bosses are able to do is put to the side how they might prefer to operate and customize how they interact with the individuals on their team to get the most out of them and to teach them the different things that, that, you know, different people on the team don't all need to learn exactly the same thing. And that type of customization is a really powerful, uh, really powerful element, I think, of what the Superboss playbook is all about. Mm, excellent stuff. Let's take a break. Again, we are speaking with Sidney um, Finkelstein, uh, who is the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Tuck Center for Leadership at Dartmouth College uh, 
powerful lessons here um, from his book, Super Bosses, How Exceptional the Flow of Talent. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and continue this discussion um, about how this can impact your business, your life, and really your legacy, as uh, Dr. Finkelstein's been teaching us. We'll be right back. More right after the break. To the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like you have a super boss, a boss that understands you, your talent, and knows how to get the best out of you? Are you a super boss? Well, joining us is the author of the book, Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent, which was published just last month. And uh, he's he's also a professor at um, Tuck at Dartmouth. Um, his name, again, is Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. He's the Stephen Roth Professor of Management, Faculty Director at Tuck Center for Leadership at the University of Dartmouth. And um, we're honored to have you back. Again, Dr. Finkelstein, great work on this bo- on the book Super Bosses. Thank you, Matt. I, um, I, I love business books and especially, you know, kind of well-researched, well-cited books. Talk to me about... Uh, in the HBR article, the Harvard Business Review article that you did, you talked about three types of super bosses. What are those? The glorious winners, yeah. and what, explain those three. Sure. Um, and I, you know, in doing this uh, research, I didn't know I'd end up with this this kind of uh, uh, analysis of these three types, but they're the ones that kept coming up time and time again. So the first. I call nurturers, and they're maybe closest to what many people might think about as as mentors. They're kind of super mentors. They do. They really do help you get better. They care about what what uh, about your development, and uh, it's kind of their their mindset. Norman Brinker, uh, who started the Brinker's chain, Chili's uh, restaurant chain, uh, he's he's the classic nurturer. So many people that work for him are today senior executives in at. T.F. Chang, at Lone Star, at all kinds of different uh, multi-unit restaurant chains. Uh, second category is more of a uh, more about creative types, and I call them iconoclasts. Uh, these are people that um, uh, are in creative industries in some way. Lorne Michaels, uh, Miles Davis, even in jazz, that uh, um, that help other people get better as a natural kind of organic outgrowth of the work that they're doing. So they, they attract great people, great talent that want to work with, uh, with, with you know, the Lorne Michaels of the world, and they interact and they, and they help other people get better just in a kind of a natural type of, type of way. Hmm. And then the third, uh, the third type are the, maybe the most unusual, and I hope I could, I could say it on the radio, but I call them uh, glorious, glorious bastards. <laughs> um, and uh, they're tough. They are tough as could be. Uh, but, boy, if you can survive and, and deal with the pressure that they put on you, the, the career trajectory is gigantic. And Who's an example like, of one of the glorious type? Yeah. Uh, well, Larry Ellison, the founder and longtime CEO, now chairman of, of Oracle, oh, yeah. uh, is in that category. And, then, you know, people that work for him, and he's got that <laughs> reputation of being really, really tough. And it goes to show you, you know, that you can be a super boss, and being a super boss doesn't mean that you're just kind of a, a soft touch that just cares about people. Yeah, huggy, huggy. 
Yeah, it's certainly possible. Nothing wrong with that. No one's going to say there's anything wrong with that. But there are other ways to to get to the same place. And you look at some of the some of the people that worked for Lauren Michael uh, for uh, Larry Ellison over the years, and you have you know Mark Benioff, who's today the CEO of Salesforce.com, and Craig uh, Conway and uh, Ray Lane, and a, lo- a lot of superstars have come out of uh, his his management ranks. It seems like the way this is uh, you're describing the book. Um, is super boss is it's you can be any type of the three or more maybe but it's you you need to just i guess care about results and care enough about and know enough about how to get it out of the people without crushing them destroying yeah, them you're right you're you're right i mean there are there are different ways to get to the same place in terms of your motivation where you start and those are these three categories of the you know the glorious bastards and the iconoclast etc but you know what was really fascinating is when you look at the details of what they do, what super bosses do, no matter what their initial motivation may have been or their style may have been, they do so many of the same things. Hmm. And, that's, and that became what I call the super boss playbook. And obviously there's a, lot, there's a lot to it, but it has to do with a couple of things that we've already talked about, how you find talent, um, motivation, and you know, pushing people, raising the bar, very high expectations, inspiring people, teaching people, coaching people, all these types of things and the specific techniques or methods, lots of stories about how they do it. They're actually very, very common despite how different these personalities happen to be. Wow. And is it, um, I mean, I guess it adaptable is probably part of the key too, right? I mean, there's some people that you probably couldn't be a glorious bastard with, but you needed to be the nurturer with. So, or do these people just kind of those those people just wouldn't grow up underneath that type of leader. They yeah, they, they you know, would they just opt out. You 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 know getting uh, finding the right place to be at any stage of life. This is true for personal lives, but it, it's certainly true for work lives. And getting a a boss that you can manage and work with. I'll say two things about it. Number one, for for anyone who has a super boss uh, as their boss. Uh, they are going to have to keep pace with that boss. They uh, they're going to have to be working. They're going to be they're going to have to be willing to make the commitment to work really really hard to uh, do all the things that super bosses expect you to do. It's not it's not easy even for the nurturers that are you right. know, are a little bit more supportive. It's not easy to do. So you you have to be prepared to do that. And then secondly, I, I have to say this: not everyone has the same ambition and aspirations in life. And Working for a super boss is one of the best ways you can accelerate your career, turbocharge your career, create gigantic opportunities. But, you know, let's face it, there are some people that don't want to have that out of their work life. They want to put in their 40 hours and they want to contribute, but they, they, they're, they're not looking to advance in the same way. Working for a super boss won't work, and, and actually they'll discover that very quickly because the super boss won't let them stay with them. The, the super bosses only want people that have that, that aspiration, have that energy to get to get better and do more with their with their careers and their lives. So can I as can can do does the super boss find the the ideal candidate or as candidates can we go looking for our super boss? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. You know, because super working for a super boss for many people it, it just sounds fantastic, and it is yeah. for those people lucky enough to have that experience. So how do you find them? And, of course, that's the first question that, I, you know, uh, students that I talk to 
uh, undergraduate students, MBA students, they're always asking that question. And I think you can. So here's a, here are a couple of tips. Um, let's say you're interviewing for a job and you're interviewing the person that's going to be your direct boss or potentially if you get the job is going to be your direct boss. Why not ask questions like, um, tell me a little bit about some of the people that worked for you in the past and where they are today. Hmm. And of course, what you want to hear is that they've moved, there, they've moved on in their careers to bigger and better opportunities. Uh, tell, tell me how you spend, you know, what is a typical day for you like? Most people will ask, what, what, is a, what does a day look like for, for yourself in the job? But ask your boss, what does a typical day look like for you? And what you want to listen for is, if some, uh, you don't want a boss that pushes herself or himself into a world where they're going meeting after meeting after meeting, totally scripted, because there's no opportunity to be a super boss if you allow other people to dominate and control your schedule. Mm. We all got meetings. We know that. They're not going to go away. But does that mean that you have to be operating in this type of totally scripted way, or is there any room for almost like freelancing as a leader, where you could walk the halls, where you could spend 5 or 10 or 20 minutes or an hour with somebody, again, rolling up your sleeves and working, uh, working with them. So you could ask, and there are many other questions you could ask um, or look for in your, in, your, in your conversations with prospective bosses. But these are things, these are, those are a couple of examples of things you can look for. Well, the very, the very thought that you're interviewing your boss is, is already a sign that you're, you probably are a super talent. Right. Because you're you're almost shopping which boss you want to work for instead of when you're desperate and you don't feel like a super talent. Um, a lot of times you just you'll do anything to get in. So what do you want me to be? What do you need me to be? I'll be whatever you want. But you're yeah. saying yeah, go in there. And if I guess if you're going in with talent um, and a willingness to work and, and do whatever to succeed. Um, yeah. Then interviewing your boss, that is power. It's uh, uh, it's absolutely right. But, you know, you. You have to not communicate effectively. Yeah. You, you gotta you gotta ask these questions. I think in an appropriate way. And I think the, the examples I just gave are yeah. not you know they're not outrageous. You can you can do that as part of a conversation. But you know what we're really talking about here is a mindset for an individual that says you know I can have a little bit more control over my life. I can accomplish whatever it is I want to accomplish in my life. And I'm going to go for it. And we know there's bumps in the roads and not everything works out. We understand that. But we also know that if you don't start with that mindset or you don't adopt that mindset, then you don't really have a chance. You've got to start with something. And so I like that idea of, of, of thinking about that and, 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 and you know, interviewing your, your, your boss or your prospective boss. You might not necessarily get everything you want to hear. You might choose for a variety of reasons to settle for something. That's, everyone's in a different situation. But... You know, why not start with that mindset that right. that's what I want? Well, and two, when you get in the company, you might you might see other super bosses to go to next or, you know, to, to move and to negotiate your career. Um, as we wrap it up, you brought up earlier, um, Sydney, about this idea of legacy. And so talk maybe just in, talk and let us understand more about what what is the what is our legacy? What? Because there's a lot of people listening that are great bosses. They may be not a super boss yet, but they want to pick their game up. But when you mean legacy, what is the legacy of a boss? Yeah, well, let me give you an example. Um, I mentioned Norman Brinker before, the guy that started the Chili's restaurant yeah. chain, Steak and Ale, Brinker's International, legendary person in his industry, truly a, uh, a classic nurturer and developer of talent. And um, you... Uh, uh, I remember when he when he died, which is just a few years ago. 
um, and his protégés, the former employees that are on, that are doing these kind of amazing things these days, uh, running their own businesses or senior executives, they took out full-page ads in newspapers around the country. And and I still have a I still have the actual thing from the newspaper. I think it was the Wall Street Journal that I saw it in. And they have a nice picture of him on the top, and then in the bottom half they have a few things that they say about him. And they talk about his career. But the one line that struck me when I read it was, you know, Norman, thank you, Norman. You were more than just a, a great leader. You, When you walked into the room, you helped everybody else get better. You cared about everyone else. Hmm. And, you know, that's, that's a legacy that we're, we all can strive for. We, could, we all could work for. I've seen it in a lot of other, uh, with a lot of other super bosses um, of, a, of an elder, uh, el- when, when they're late, later in their career, and people that were affected by them coming up to tell them, to talk to them, to thank them. Um, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of ways to live a life and, and live a career. And we all want to be successful. Of course, we want personal wealth and other, other wonderful things. But legacy might be the single most important thing that we're going to remember when, uh, when, when, our, when, when we're getting towards the end of our, uh, uh, of our run. And uh, why not go for it and go for it uh, right as early as you can and adopt some of the super boss approach. Mm, love it. Uh, and great, great advice from you. Again, thank you, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. Appreciate your great work. And uh, thanks for spending this time with us. Oh, thanks, Matt. Really enjoyed it. You bet. Go look up the book, the book Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And uh, really what you're getting is faculty director from the Tuck Center for Leadership at uh, Dartmouth College or Dartmouth University. You're getting the best. Um, it's power, folks. Power is in your legacy. Uh, it's one thing to go fulfill a job. It's another thing to not be forgotten because of it, to have influenced many, many other lives. That's why we do the show, folks. We want focus on legacy, not just on your income when it comes to your life and your job. We'll take a break, come back, uh, wrap it up with a little tiny little coach's corner up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, so when you think about it, how what do you want your legacy to be? As an employer, as an employee, how do you want to be remembered? Well, it doesn't matter, Matt. I mean, I'm just if I'm just serving hamburgers, what does it matter my legacy is? I mean, it does matter. Because you're gonna leave something behind, right? You're gonna leave some memory, some idea, something is going to be left by all of us. And um, it's important. It's important what that is. Uh, really, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's inevitable you're going to influence people. The only question is how you're going to influence them. When I worked with uh, Franklin Covey for years, they had a, a quote that said that was basically a mission is basically to live, to love, to learn, and to leave a legacy. To live a healthier life, to love, have strong relationships, to learn, to grow, to, you know, to be maximized and to maximize our talent, and to leave a legacy. So the question is very simply, what is your legacy? What is it that you are hoping to get into the hearts and the minds of the people around you? 
Um, again, the legacy is going to happen. It's just what's what do you want it to be? And so think about that. What when at your funeral? What would you like people to say about you as a boss? I've had a boss that changed my life. I've had a boss that was able to talk like very personally with me about their own life, and it changed me. And it made it so I didn't want to just work hard for myself. I wanted to work harder for my boss. And when my boss would bring up an idea like, hey, we can, we need to really pick up our numbers and we need to do this better, you know what is so amazing is we all went and did it. We went and worked harder for this guy because we trusted him. We trusted him. There's a great uh, quote by Shannon L. Alder that says, Carve your name on hearts, not on tombstones. A legacy is etched into the minds of others and the stories they share about you. Right? You're, you're here to, to carve some name, some impact on the hearts of people. And uh, I think that's where the legacy is is richest. I mean, you can leave a building, right? You could leave a foundation, an institution. You could leave a lot of money. And I guess people will remember you. But if you leave the money and you don't leave a, a soft place in their heart for you, then thanks for the money. Um, but I'm probably not going to maybe keep the mission, the purpose, the passion, the legacy of it alive. So a uh, little homework for you is just go start asking yourself – How do you want to be remembered? And what's the most important thing you can do today to become that change? Basic stuff, right? We'll take a break, folks. Uh, More tools, more ideas right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you Real solutions for real world problems. Wow. It just kind of feels like you're overstating it. No. No. Just just a little. Have you not listened to the show the last two hours? It's been really good. Real leadership solutions for how to deal with real life problems like Afghanistan and your boss. (sighs) You feel like you've, you've delivered this morning? Yeah. Today we've delivered. The goods have been delivered. We still have one more hour. Yeah, but this could, next hour, have you ever had somebody? You ever felt like people are just looking at you? Yeah. Every you know, like, like I have a I have a sense that like you're you're staring at somebody and then they turn and look at you. Mm-hmm. Like somehow they felt that. Yeah, yeah. Or sometimes you you kind of feel like someone's like looking at you. So you turn around real quick and they are. They're staring right at you. Yeah. Why is that? Well. It's probably because your zipper's down. It could be. Because that's what – every time someone – I feel that feeling, someone's staring at me, I check my zipper. Seven times out of ten, zipper's down. Wow. That's but, what but my three, wife – But three times, you're like, all right. Nailed it. No, but th- apparently, we're going to find out we're wired to pay attention and to sense that. We're hmm. wired to sense and to be able to look at people's eyes and to watch when they're watching and know when they're watching. That's evolution. Because if the ones that couldn't sense those eyes, so they're it's dead. A, it's a fight or flight is what you're saying. Probably, yeah. 
They're dead though because they didn't pay attention. Hope they saw me. Oh, yeah. Was that a was that a jaguar ready to pounce? <laughs> if you didn't notice that, they're right. dead. I understand. So, that we'll that makes that. total sense. And you know what? One of the keys is it's the whites of the eyes. Oh yeah. As they say, when you see the whites of their eyes. Don't fire till you see the whites of their yeah. eyes. That's just when you're low on ammo. But you know what else? Like if you go look at a lion, a lion, they don't have – they have less white in their eye. They just Ooh. have like the pupil. So you can't really tell? Yeah. And part of that is because they're, they never wanted to give up that hand. But in communication, we want people to be able to read our eyes a little bit because that, imp- that improves communication. What if someone is dead in the eyes? Well, then I check and you can't, pulse. And you, check well, pulse. Well, they're, they're talking to you, but you can't read them because it looks like it's kind of lifeless. Like Ben. A little bit. It's a little cr- I didn't want to point out oh, any so, names. Yeah. But you, you did point with your eyes. Well, yeah. It was, that was more for you he's, than for- Come on, man. <laughs> that just usually means he's low in sugar. Yeah. He's, his, that means his breakfast cereal has worn off. But if any of you have a Snickers bar, I would- There's people it. you can't read. As you're looking at them, it's like you can't exactly mm. tell what's happening. Are they doing something with their eyes? I don't know. Are they wearing sunglasses? That's harder to read somebody. I always make them take their sunglasses off. It's true. Hmm. We'll be talking to an expert on uh, the importance of eye contact and what it teaches us. What you know, and what those that sense that people are watching you. Sometimes it just might be you're way too into yourself. Could be. Because nobody's watching. Um, Today, by the way, also ice cream for breakfast day. One of the greatest days ever. So don't don't have pizza for breakfast. No. Grab a bowl of ice cream. Right. Make a shake like Ben does. A bacon shake. He loves just a vanilla. And when someone accuses you of of having ice cream for breakfast, I'm getting my dairy. Just say say what? You're, you're You're against calcium? Right. Allegedly, people don't get enough protein in their diet. That's right. So if you put, I don't know, a breakfast burrito in a shake. Wow. That sounds gross. You've got your protein. Just skip the breakfast burrito. I mean, there's fat in the tortilla. There's there's cholesterol in the egg. That's true. There's no fat in ice cream. No, not at all. It's the good kind of fat. Yeah. It's the healthy fat. (laughs) Did you hear about uh, this um, crazy, crazy moment? I mean- there's this there's this point in life where you just wonder, really? A silly string incident at the Walmart store has resulted in retail fraud charges against a couple who made a mess with the canned string. The Michigan couple entered the store and commenced to get in a fight with silly string, said County Sheriff Kim Cole. They allegedly ended up emptying multiple cans of the string, which comes out of an aerosol can, ruining the environment, in multiple aisles of the store. Cole said it sounds like they did make quite a mess. He said employees of the store demanded the couple pay for the cans they used. They opted just to leave rather than pay. The sheriff said, "Um, you know, what will you do? I mean, what are you going to do? You know what you do? You do what Ben and I have been telling people for years to do. Taze it. You don't need to arrest him. Just say you two with the silly string cans. Come over here. And then you don't say anything. You just play our jingle. Taze it. You distract him with the first part. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what? Remember what? And then then, get him right in the ribs. And then it relaxes him enough that you can actually access a deadly, not deadly, you don't want deadly, but a painful 
an immobilizing position. Remember that from Tasers R Us, it's a gentle way to help people remember. We, we call it the bait and switch. of mm-hmm. the. Yeah. It's a taser technique where you play this jingle on the speakers and then go for yeah. it. We actually call it the tase and twitch. Mm. It's uh, you tase them, they twitch a bit. Yeah. They thought they were going to just get like a gentle remember, you know, reminding. Is that the word? Uh, just a gentle, like like a nudge. Nudge, but You're instead to help them along. They got the tase and twitch. But instead, you've basically given them temporary paralysis as they flop around on the floor. But you know what? Problem solved. They're not spraying silly string anymore. Definitely. I'm serious. If we would just do this, it's over. Now I don't know what you do with the 15 year old. When he and his buddies go in and do the exact same thing, you might not – maybe you don't want to sell Silly String. Could be. They they put their guns under lock and key they at do. Walmart. They, they maybe do. they need their Silly String. That would be the next step. Wouldn't that be fun though? Walk into a store and just go nuts? Well, sure. Okay. It's just – I mean it's illegal and it causes other people to have to clean up messes It's and not stuff, appropriate. But, but it would be fun for that five seconds because that's all the Silly String can last. <laughs> Did you hear? Oh, this is so sad. I don't even want to laugh about it. Yes, yeah, you do. But did you hear about the Burger King employees? Ah, oh, so there was a prank mm. at a California Burger King on Saturday evening when a restaurant employee crashed his car through the front entrance of the Burger King, then crashed through part of the drive-through. <laughs> and employees claimed that they began breaking out restaurant windows. After receiving a prank call from a person who said that there was a gas leak at the Burger King. No, that's what they thought. That's what it would have sounded like. If we let the gas gas leak go, that could happen. So instead, they just gently, with their car and other devices, broke out the windows at the, the Burger King to provide ventilation. A public safety team, including both police and fire departments, responded to the possible gas leak. However, upon arrival, firefighters found the damage to the facility, but no gas leak. Hmm. So. Interesting. <sighs> but halfway through that, wouldn't you wouldn't you think about it for a second before you keep driving? I mean, well, yeah, you'd probably you, think, how many windows do we need to break? A couple windows, you're fine. You take a car through the front of the building. Yeah, eh, this seems extreme. Well, it seems like you'd also be creating a spark. Yes, because metal against yeah. brick or glass or, or whatever just, it is. Yeah, or just your spark plugs in your car. That too. It's just the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah. No. It's, I mean, there's been similar situations where people call in a prank and they go, you need to break out the windows. And so people start doing it. And then yeah. everyone, whoever's doing it, I, I'm hoping whoever did it watched. Because what else would the, the payoff be? Yeah. You'd yeah. want to see it happen. Well, it seems like what you really ought to do, if there's a gas leak threat, just get everyone out. Well, that would be the smart thing. And then, honestly, I would have looked at it like, sweet. Day off. I'm out of here. Time. <laughs> Gra- I'm, I'd grab me a little apple pie, mm-hmm. maybe a soda, park, hang out in the parking some fries, and yeah. i just wait for the fire department. Clear it. Yeah. But can you imagine being the owner of this, yeah. of this store that shows up and is like, you did what? Well, we, we heard... There was a gas leak. And they got a car sitting in the front of the building. And yeah. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. 
Anyway, um, let's get to the headlines. Anything going on around the world we need to pay attention to? There is. Thanks, Matt. President Obama is expected to visit Cuba around March 21st. President Obama announced the trip this morning on Twitter. It would be the first time in 80 years that a sitting president would visit the island nation as they try to normalize relations. Yeah. They also announced uh, new air travel. They agreed on air flights between the two countries. So we'll, we'll see how that continues to uh, develop, that relationship there. American voters are divided, especially along party lines, whether the U.S. Senate should vote this year on President Obama's eventual nominee, nominee to succeed to secede Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court, according to results from a new national NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Over 43% say the Senate should vote this year on a replacement versus 42% who prefer to leave the position vacant and wait for a, a nomination by the new president. Fifteen percent have no opinion. Among Democratic voters, eighty-one percent want the Senate to vote this year. Among Republicans, eighty-one percent want them to leave the position vacant for the next president. It's almost like divided on party lines. Independents are split forty-three to forty-three uh, percent for this year, forty-two percent for next year. Split again. Everyone's split. So. That's how everyone is. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor says, "Get her done. Let's get it going." So, and she was a she was a conservative appointed by Reagan, I believe. We'll see what happens. Hmm. Turns out, many Donald of Donald Trump South Carolina supporters are still a little sore about the outcome of the Civil War. A public policy polling survey released Tuesday found that 38 percent of Trump supporters in the state of South Carolina wish the South had won the war, with another 38 percent saying they were they weren't sure who should have won. And just 24, thankful the union was triumphant. Wow. It's kind of an interesting question to ask. It also seems like it's kind of over. Yes, but they kind of need to move on. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, then, a whole 70% of Trump's fans also thought the Confederate flag should still fly at their state capitol in South Carolina. Trump's uh, southern supporters also tend to agree with his controversial plan involving Muslims, with 80% saying they should, they, uh, they'd support banning Muslims from entering the United States. 62% of Trump supporters in South Carolina think the U.S. needs a national database of Muslims. So they agree with Trump is what they're trying to say. Hmm. His supporters agree with him. Agree with him. As it should be. As it does. John Kasich will not be in South Carolina on Saturday during the state's Republican primary and will instead travel to Massachusetts, a state that votes March 1st on Super Tuesday. Kasich was a four, has 4% support in South Carolina, according to recent polling. Hmm. So he's just skipping he's, the whole thing. Yeah, I don't want to play this one. I'm going to lose. I don't I'll want to see you down the road. Watch it happen. A federal grand jury in Nevada indicted Cliven Bundy and four others Wednesday on 16 charges related to an armed standoff near his ranch in 2014 over unpaid grazing fees. The 69-year-old Nevada rancher was arrested February 10th in Portland, Oregon, where his sons Ammon and Ryan Bundy are also jailed and accused of organizing the occupation of the National Wildlife Refuge in southeast Oregon. Ammon and Ryan were among those indicted by the Nevada grand jury on charges that include conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States and conspiracy to impede or injure a federal officer. Cliven Bundy and the other defendants are currently in custody in Oregon. Today marks a tremendous step towards ending more than 20 years of lawbreaking, says the Bureau of Land Management Director Neil Cornsey in a statement. Wow. And what they found when they got into the compound. Yeah. I, that's that's why they were digging the we, trenches. We were, we were watching the live feed on YouTube, and they were digging trenches with heavy machinery. And we were wondering what those trenches were for. You can look up the story yourself. Potty facilities. But also they were then violating like a Paiute Indian tribal sanctuary. They put a road through this right. protected land. How yeah. offensive to the tribe. Absolutely. Tom Brady. 
He's a football player extraordinaire, I've they heard says. Of him. Yeah. He may have a future in politics. Wow. The, really? pa- the Patriots quarterback isn't running for anything, but still managed to garner four write in votes for the recent New Hampshire primary. <laughs> His appeal transcends partisanship. He had two Republican votes and two Democratic votes. Wow. So it's bipartisan. This is great. This all came out of the New Hampshire Secretary of State office, which posted official results online of the Republican side and the Democratic side. Former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney uh, did better than Brady in New Hampshire. He he also a former Massachusetts governor, has co- connections to the state. He won the GOP primary in 2012. He received 23 write-in votes hmm. for the Republican side. Not and, bad. And three from Democrats. And he's not even the quarterback. He's not even running. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Wow, we we have a hard time. I think a lot of us we just we struggle letting go of the past. Sometimes when the present isn't quite what you want it to be, we just want to keep hanging on to the past. Interesting stuff. Let's take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about eye contact. You know that feeling when somebody's looking at you and you can sense and tell they're they're looking at you. Um, Interesting, interesting insight from a professor who will be walking us through some of his latest research about gaze detection. Stick with us. Interesting stuff right next, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever passed by someone and just felt their eyes on you? How did you know that they were staring at you if you can't even see them? Is it a sixth sense? Is it paranoia? Or is it something we biologically come equipped with as humans? Dr. Ilan Shrira joins us. He's a a social psychologist at Arkansas Tech University. He joins us today from Arkansas to tell us more about the science behind the feeling when you know someone is watching you and what it means for your relationships and even your own survival. Dr. Ilan Shrira, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Great to be here. Great to have you. This is an interesting um, feeling. I think a lot of us, I think pretty much everyone has to have sensed sometime that people were paying attention. They were watching them, um, and, and you can just feel it. Is that is that accurate, or are we just paranoid? What's really going on when we have that feeling? Oh, it's very accurate. We're doing it all the time. I mean, normal conversations when people are around, uh, I guess what the, the sort of the strange parts come in is – when we don't know someone's there and we sort of realize it and it seems like we haven't seen it or we sort of get a feeling, but it's such a sort of non-perceptible thing that it, it feels like it's extrasensory perception. Yeah. So I think we, we definitely all get that once in a while, perhaps very often. Um, but it, Where does it come from? What is it? Is that gaze detection? Is that what you call that? Yeah, gaze detection is one is, is probably a simple way of saying it. Uh, detecting other people's gaze, um, you can you can think of it as I mean two very general types of gaze perception, gaze detection is that we're aware of where other people are looking in general, whether it's uh, at us or somewhere in the environment, and then we tend to be even more sensitive to when someone is looking directly at us, hmm. and that that sort of really sets off something a little bit more in the brain it's more meaningful to us and, and when they're doing that what goes off in the brain like is it is, is it our fight or flight that we're like uh-oh we're either at dinner or we're going to be laughed at um it's 
it's not necessarily positive or negative. It does seem to be, like you mentioned, similar to something like faces, where we have certain parts of the brain that are devoted just to facial perception and recognizing and reading faces. We seem to also have uh, some parts of the brain uh, that overlap a bit with faces, facial perception, uh, certain modules in the brain that are, seem designed to detect other people's gaze. And it's spread throughout different parts of the brain, but it does seem to be a system that evolved not just in humans, but other animals too. And it's active in, I mean, just, just about every kind of social interaction uh, we can think of. Um, and the function is, I mean, just more generally, I mean, if we're not even talking about eye contact, you're aware when you're talking to someone or several people at the same time where they're looking, and it's a mechanism of joint attention. So you, they look in one direction, you look in that, other, in that same direction. Uh, where people are looking is just very basic to t- turn-taking in conversation. We're usually just not aware yeah. uh, that, that, I, the other, like that eyes are so um, important there. I mean, I guess that's true, right? When you're talking to people, you can, you 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 almost even re, like if you're speaking to two people, you might follow their eyes, and the one that's looking away, you look at. Then there's that weird moment, like where are you looking? Um, yeah. But but it's interesting how that is how you kind of also can gauge where you are in the conversation when it might be turned to time to take turns, to turn the conversation over to someone else. Exactly. Yeah. What people, uh, whether they like you, whether they don't like you, whether uh, and, and in general, like what are their intentions? I mean, mm. if they're looking in some direction and they're walking or maybe they're, get, they're about to move in that direction. Um, and then more socially, I, direct eye contact is very important for intimacy. It's um, when people intimidate one another. Uh, eye contact is usually the beginning of it. Uh, eye contact is associated with uh, certain emotions like happiness and, and anger. And when we're afraid, when we're anxious, we tend to avoid eye contact. So the eye contact is also a cue to others' emotions. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, the eye contact directly, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. Uh, it just sort of depends. I mean, we, we tend to prefer faces when, peop- when the eyes are looking directly at us. It's more a cue that somebody likes me, someone's paying attention to me. Yeah. So in that sense, it's a good thing. But like you say, it can also be a, a paranoia thing. If you don't want to be watched by certain people, it, it can be a negative thing. Well, and it's interesting you bring up anxious or a- angry. I mean, um, y- when someone's mad at you and they've got that look of anger, it, it, that's a fighting moment. I mean, that's kind of a dangerous moment. So no wonder you wouldn't want to look at each other then. I mean, unless you're really ready to fight, eye to eye sometimes is hard. Absolutely. And if it's clear if someone's angry at you and they're looking at you, if you're ready to fight, you look right back at them. If you want to be submissive and kind of avoid it, you look away. So you think of a parent scolding a child. They're really scolding them, and the child will tend to just look down, look away, or the judge is sentencing them, look down, look away. Uh, from both sides, it's a very telling nonverbal signal. Have you ever um, watched, this is just kind of shallow, but I think interesting, um, online on YouTube, there is a, a guy named Kevin, I think his name is Richardson, and he, he basically, they call him the lion whisperer. He lives on a 700 you know a, acre uh, preserve of lions, and he, he actually interacts, he lives with these lions, basically. But wow. he, he, he uses a lot of his body language 
to um, to communicate to these animals where he's submissive, and you know he'll pop him on the nose if they bite him too hard. And but he's learned to kind of do their do their stuff. I mean, a lot of this sounds like just kind of natural biological stuff that we're doing. And and the eyes, I guess, are a tell, right? They're a tell for what we're thinking. Yeah, probably the most central tell. Um, and yeah, with lions, it's a great example. I'm sure people who train dogs or people who have any sort of pets, uh, have pets, uh, animals understand eye contact to a large degree, especially dogs and probably most others. Uh, so it definitely extends across animal species. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not sure if eye contact is is would be. I, I'm curious whether eye contact would be central to uh, Kevin Richardson's no. training of lions. His or? is more phys- physical, so he oh. just knows that if you don't want to, if you want certain moments when you want to be submissive, just be smaller. Just so he mm-hmm. just his, he does he just moves his body more in relation to where the other cats are, and there's other times he'll move himself bigger. But he knows not to be bigger than the lion um, in certain moments. Be smaller. It's but it's so subtle. But I guess what you're teaching us is these these clues are there. The cues are there. And there's some interesting research in your article about why how the human eye has evolved to have more of a sclera. I guess we call it. Yeah. Talk about that because that to me is fascinating as opposed to like just animals' eyes. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. It's. Um... So you have the, the center of the eye, the, the dark part. You have the iris and the pupil, the center of the eye. And then what, what for, for in humans, the white part of the eye. Um, and if you look at, so this research looked at, uh, took the, the image of an eye across 40 or so different primates, humans included, but gorillas, monkeys, uh, different types of monkeys, and looked at, uh, okay, what is the color of the sclera? And how much does how much of the sclera can you see in the visible outer portion of the eye? And you find that compared to all other primates, in humans, humans are the only one who have we have no pigment hmm. uh, in our sclera. It's completely white. In all other primates and, and virtually most lots of other animals, it's there's some pigment, so it's darker. Um, and in humans, you see the most visible amount. You see the the greater you, you see the parts outside of the the pupil and the iris, whereas in other primates the the pupil and iris cover most of the outward appearance of the eye. And the explanation, well, and so the implication there is that if um, if you have the, the the dark part covering most of the eye, and if you have a pigmented sclera, it's difficult. It's more difficult to tell where someone's looking, where mm. the animal is looking. Whereas for humans, we've evolved in a way, uh, our eyes have evolved in a way so that it's very easy to detect exactly where we're looking. Right. Which I guess is for communication. Yes, precisely. And I mean, see, I even in, the, in your article, it even shows a dog, for example, even a dog and probably a cat have more sclera visible, which is maybe why we relate to them so well. And we think they're talking to us. They have more than a human. They have more than the other animals. Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. Dogs and cats seem to have their scleras pretty white. Yeah. Also, um, I guess the the sort of the other thing about for, I mean, so another position we use, and then what what we use for other animals to see where they're looking is obviously their head movement, and so they're not going to necessarily move their eyes as much. But what we can tell a lot also just by their head and their body positions, whereas. 
humans more than any other primate will tend to look around because uh, we can look around a lot more without even having to move our head. Yeah. <laughs> we can move the eyeballs. Yes, and it's definitely seemed to evolve because soci- sociability, communication uh, has become so much more important, uh, which is why, I mean, uh, another reason why we, we have the language to that, that uh, other animals don't Oh, it's have. fascinating. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Um, Ilan uh, Shrira from the university, or Arkansas Tech University. He's a social psychologist walking us through the importance of your eyes and how your eyes, really, they're a tell, they're a sign, and maybe we need to be paying more attention to it. A lot of the things, like even just sensing that people are watching you, um, that's a that's a gift of uh, biology that's probably designed to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll take a break, folks. Come back more on eye contact right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. I know you're watching me. That's the problem. That's called gaze detection, folks. That sense that somebody's watching you. You're supposed to have that. I mean, it's helpful. I mean, unless, of course, no one is there. (laughs) Then it's just crazy. But that feeling that uh, people are watching you, it's designed – it's it's your way of being able to identify, you know, when you're safe, when you might have opportunities. And uh, our our guest right now, uh, Dr. Elon Shrira, joins us. He is um, teaching us about the importance of eye contact. He wrote a wonderful article in Psychology Today about our eye contact, and uh, we welcome you back to the show, Dr. Elon Shrira. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Talk, us, talk to us a little bit about um, why this, why it matters. Like, I mean, when I look at someone's, uh, and we're talking, and they look away, and they look back, wh- why are they, why, why do we, how do we use our eyes, I guess, is a better way of asking it, to, to kind of manage our connections and our communication? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. Um, where we look is uh, very significant. Uh, you mentioned looking away and looking back at someone. I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess first it's important to say that obviously the context matters and the relationship matters right. uh, between the people. But, um, yeah, I mean, sort of what is the norm in a situation? Is someone making a lot of eye contact? Is someone making very little eye contact? Do they keep, I mean, for example, do they keep looking at their watch? Do they keep looking at the clock? Um, it's, uh, it's just so, and, and I think most of the time it's just not something we're aware of. I mean, it, but it, right. we react to it. And I think the awareness is, and, and probably most of the time it's not a conscious feeling. Um, I should say, I, I have gotten, uh, I've talked to a lot of people about this um, when they hear that I know something about this, is that they'll say, well, they'll, they'll tell me a story about how they were walking down the street and they sensed that someone in some building was, um, they, they felt that they were being stared at. So they looked over at the, the direction where they thought it was coming from, and sure enough, somebody was in a window looking in their general direction. Hmm. And so this, I mean, when something, and I think that kind of thing has happened to us, we get some sort of intuition, we look, and someone's actually there, and that sort of really just seems to confirm that this, wow, I have some sort of ability that is maybe 
a supernatural kind of thing almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, and may, I mean, it could just be energy, and it could just be validated too by every time it's happened, and it actually had what someone was watching. They were like, "Yeah, see." It, but yeah. maybe we forget all the other times that people aren't watching. But in the end, I mean, it's very natural. The eye roll. I mean, how, anybody that's had a teenage girl or a teenage child. Mm-hmm. It's a natural thing to roll your eyes, and that communicates so much. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely. I'm not sure if that's a cultural thing. Yeah, if the eye rolling in, in every culture you do that. I mean, but certainly in our culture, that's that's such a, a vivid signal. And yeah, something we've we've learned. What should we do when it comes to eye contact? You know, as an expert, um, as a social psychologist, what should we pay attention to? What should we pay attention to? You mean it's it, yeah, like eye rolling? Uh-huh. Well, and just interacting with other people when it comes to eye contact. Do we do – we, do we, I mean there's a point where too much eye contact is a problem. It's almost just like you've got to feel your way through it instead of just keep a fixed eye gaze. I mean you can't just give them the rules. So much of it's natural. Right. Yes. Uh, and and, and you, you sort of put your – put your finger right on it, usually what we will do is we will tend to mimic the other person, the amount of eye contact the other person is giving us, Mm. uh, unless we really know them well, or unless maybe we're really high status or in control, then high status people will tend to make more eye contact when they're speaking to someone. But in most situations, it's um, it's it, we just sort of mimic the other person, and it's not really clear where the other person is is getting it from. But usually, following the rule, imitating the other person, both in eye contact and body language, is usually the automatic thing. It usually gets other people to like us more, yeah, and to see us as more similar. So that's probably the best default rule. If someone's making lots of eye contact or little eye contact, but obviously, if I mean, if someone is just not looking at you and looking away, you don't want to. Copy that. You right. want to make a certain amount. Just um, distance matters. So what you find is that when P, if you're talking to somebody and they're right up in your face and you're just um, and let's say you don't know them that well, we'll tend to not make as much eye contact. It's mm-hmm. a little bit too intimate if you're like really like up a, a couple feet away from somebody. Whereas if you're halfway across the room, we'll feel a lot more comfortable making direct eye contact and a lot more of it. It's not as overwhelming. So that's definitely oh, that's uh, great stuff. And then um, uh, I think it was Dr. Arthur Aaron who did the study on closeness, talked about you know three, four, five minutes of eye to eye contact uh, can also create closeness with people, which is natural when we're dating somebody. We look into their eyes a lot more. It seems like with a lot of the couples I work with that are struggling in their marriages, where there's you know anxiety and tension, they tend to look into each other's eyes a lot less. Absolutely, and the study you describe is a great illustration. He he asked some people, uh, I believe it was a, a man and a woman, to like sit in uh, a chair across from one another, and for some of them, yeah, just stare in each other's eyes for five minutes and don't say anything. And afterward, those people really liked each other a lot more yeah. than people who, uh, yeah. So and I mean, that works. That's yeah. It, it's it's interesting through the eyes, right? I guess the the windows to the soul. Um, well, we appreciate you, Doctor Elon uh, uh, Shira. We really, I mean, to me, I love uh, learning about this, and I think again, the article I recommend psych- on psychology today: how you know eyes are watching you, uh, and keep up your great work there. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You bet. Wonderful stuff, folks. We're going to take a break. Remember, the goal of the show is to help you live longer, and you know, watching people's eyes might help there. 
It also is to help you love stronger. Pay attention to, you know, the, the people that you care about. Pay attention to their eyes. Notice the emotion. Notice, notice if they have anxiety or a fear or aggression. Pick up on these signs and instead of like fighting them on it or just fighting or flighting, engage them. Talk about it. You seem sad. You seem, you seem mad. Talk to me. See if we can turn some of these looks into words, which is a great gift of the human. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to throw it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. What's going on? Spencer will be here in a moment. Jerem Jordan, how are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. How was, uh, you know, how was things? You know, I wasn't here yesterday. Don't know if you noticed it, but. uh, We we did. I was saying goodbye to my son. He, he, my son is leaving on an He's LDS going mission. To your LDS mission. Yes, trip. he is. Where's he going? To Misery. But nice. they, they told me it's pronounced Missouri. The, home, the homeland. The homeland. <laughs> the homeland. Independence, Missouri is where he's going. Oh, nice. Yes. And, uh, cool. yeah, pretty, pretty cool. He's going to just hang out there for two years. And there's that moment where you say goodbye to your child and you think, will I ever see you again? And then he's like, Dad, relax. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty. It's a pretty intense moment. It is. It didn't sink in for me when I left on mine for a month. Well, but yours was court ordered, right? I mean, yours oh, was different. Gosh. A month in, I was like, I was, you know, I'm sitting in Sao Paulo, Brazil, going, <laughs> "Where am I?" <laughs> <laughs> These people talk different. Is that when you realized I'm learning they, a new they language? Don't speak American. <laughs> yeah. Sounds weird. No, that's a pretty. That's a pretty intense moment yeah. for uh, everyone involved. You know. So I kind of. So I, I just need your therapy. Oh, I, let me ask you this. Uh, you can fill in Spencer when he gets there. But um, he's here. Okay, is he there, Spencer? I'm here. Okay, I heard good. that whole conversation good. about Brazil and Jerem yeah. being lost that month in. See, you're you're in tune. Oh, I wasn't lost. I was lost mentally. Well, yeah. Jerem being mentally lost a month in. Did, did you guys hear – I need your help on this. Um, let's say somebody – let's say you worked at Burger King, both of you, okay? Let's say you're little princes, burger princes. And um, somebody calls in and says, hey, there's a gas leak. And what you need to do is you need to, you need to break some of the windows to get – to let the gas out or it's going to explode. Would you actually go get in your car – and then drive into the doors and break all the doors and start breaking windows. It all depends who told me this. It was just it was just called in. It was called in. Yeah. Then no, I would get a journalism. <laughs> At least two credible sources. Who said what, Different. when, where? Yeah, Th- that happened at a, at a Burger King. That was a prank call at a California Burger King. Yeah. And the employees ended up breaking out a bunch of windows and the doors and the drive-through. Wow. So, so um, how old were the employees? The, they were six. Six years old. Have it your way. And they did. <laughs> you I mean, can't. if it's a couple of teenage girls or boys or whatever, like, I, the more you, understanding makes sense. of that. Sure. Yeah. But, but if, if it's it, adults. If it was well, the senior staff, you're saying. If it was the senior staff at the Burger yeah. King. But really, we decided you should just grab, you know, you should just grab some fries and a Coke or whatever and then go just call the fire department and go watch outside. Yeah. I'd grab a Whopper. Grab a Whopper. Uh, have a good time. <laughs> See, that's what we try to help on our show. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm just that, letting you know that. That's the motto. If you guys – exactly. What's the motto? What's the matter? Taysom Hill. Oh, that's right. back. That's – talk to me about that. What What do you do with, with Taysom and Tanner in the same offense? Well, I don't know. Let's ask Ty Detmer. Let's, we'll do that today. Billion-dollar oh. question. Perfect yeah, segue. Yeah, there, and we addressed yesterday on the show, and we'll continue to address it, is um, why Tanner – today's you know, part of our conversation is what does Taysom Hill have to do to become the starter? Because he is currently injured. Yeah, and there is a healthy quarterback who threw for over three thousand yards and uh, helped BYU win nine games. His name's Tanner Mangum, mm-hmm. and as of now, he's going to be the starter against Arizona, and in our it, opinion, because Taysom Mill has to get healthy. Those are among the reasons, sure, with things he has to do. But that's part of our conversation today. And as mentioned, Ty Detmer will be in studio to address such questions. Mm. You also, I'm sure, you heard Bronco made a comment um, about you know BYU. It's hard. They're going to have to get into a they're going to have to get into a conference. Yeah, sustainability as an independent. He said that he doesn't believe it's sustainable. Right. Now, now, that, now that is a big, juicy conversation. My opinion is the same. That it is not long-term sustainable because right. BYU's standard is a Power 5 standard, but they don't have Power 5 money. They're doing the best they can with the means they can. The exposure is fantastic, all that. I get it. Financially... Uh, the Power Fives are getting a lot, a lot, a lot of TV contract money, like 20-plus million a year, whereas BYU is not getting close to that number. It's mm. not even half of that number. It's so about the money then. It is about the money. It's always the about money the money. equals uh, facilities, yep. and, and uh, the power is in the money and the access. So you get better recruits that way. BYU uh, recruits well, recruits in a unique way, by design, hamstrung, or uh, you know, hand-tied yeah. behind its back. By design, uh, but independence is a means to an end. In my opinion, BYU divorced from the Mountain West and hopes to marry up in a Power Five. They don't want to go back to a Group of Five conference unless they absolutely have to in the future. And that's nothing BYU said, but that's my opinion. In 10 years, is BYU still independent? I don't think so. I appreciate the marriage metaphor. Yeah. I mean, I think that was— They got out of what they thought was a bad relationship. Like a divorce, but not absolutely. But it was no, it was, no. They totally divorced. They're like, we're out. We're moving. Oh. We're out of this. So BYU in the football metaphor is divorced. Yes, and and single. Yes, hoping looking to be courted, looking by for a ring, richer spouse, uh-huh. power five, yeah, money, power five. Yeah, BYU could be. They could be independent for a long time because they have their own TV station. They have the ESPN contract, which That's will right. hopefully be renewed in a couple of years. I don't see any reason that wouldn't be. In this metaphor, does that make Notre Dame like an old maid? Independent. That everyone takes out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They get access to the part, the married parties, even though they're single. <laughs> they're the only right. one. Because just they're yeah, they're a great personality. Who wants to go to a married party if you're single? Notre Dame does, because everyone showers them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, <laughs> with the gifts. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we just want the metaphor to end. Showers them with gifts. With gifts, exactly. No, no, we knew that. I knew that's what you meant. Like a wedding shower. I knew that. No. I mean, Spencer didn't. This is getting, this is getting weird. Hey. Um, it always does. What, what else is going on <laughs> your show uh, going on? I mean, I know you've got, uh, you're going to be talking about tonight's game, is it? Uh, you know what? Because of the Taysom Hill news, today's game day for BYU men's and women's basketball kind of takes a backseat just because it USC's is. USC is so bad. It is, yes. That. That one and two, it's it's Taysom Hill yeah. and Tanner Mangum. Mm. Football is king. Still on February eighteenth. Yeah, 
I, 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 and I appreciate you guys debuting the new marriage metaphor that you'll be talking about through your show on my show. Divorce from a conference? Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway. All right. I appreciate it. Jerem's checking out. I'm pretty sure Jerem Jer- <laughs> will never use that metaphor. I loved it. I think it was a perfect example. Are we on the air? Yeah. Is this on? Huh? Hello? Is this thing working? No um, red light. So you're going to really highlight – you're going to highlight Taysom a lot today. That's what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Derwin Gray, former BYU cornerback, uh, who is now a pastor Oh, back east. Cool. I don't even remember where. Where is it? North Carolina? North Carolina. North Carolina. And specifically Taysom Hill, what – like, because people think that automatically, just because he's Taysom Hill, he's he's going to be the starter, right? But that's a uh, well, you're going to ask the you're going to ask gross overestimation because well, you, yeah, it's February 18th and he's not he's jogging right now, right? Let's yeah, which take is pretty this one um, day at a time. Yeah, and, and that's that yeah, in and of itself is amazing. Well, and again, Tanner killed it. He did great. So, and I guess Ty Detmer's going to have something to say about it. Yeah, yeah. Ty's dealing with a Heisman Trophy type caliber quarterback, assuming he can get healthy, and the National Freshman of the Year in Tanner Mangum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a guy named after a Taser. <laughs> That's a Taser, it. Taser it. I can't even remember what that's originally for anymore. That's my new company. Oh yeah. Okay. Tasers are us. Tasers are us. That's right. Oh yeah. We'll bling your tase. <laughs> no tase and no tase and twitch here. You know the you know the you know the bait and switch. We tase and twitch. Tase and twitch. <laughs> That's what I'm going to name my two kids. Tase you, and twitch. You're done having kids. Though. Hey, guess what? We'll talk <laughs> so about. Rude, but we totally need to talk true. about Steven Tyler tomorrow. Okay. Okay, Steven Tyler. We'll write that down. Steven Tyler. Uh, we are taking requests. Do you know to, how old he is? Uh, I, I'm going to go with ninety. That's really close. 67. 67. <laughs> is he is he that old? Steven yeah. Tyler. 67. Yeah, okay. Tomorrow that will actually lead with a we song. Need, yeah, from him. we need to talk about that tomorrow. We saw him okay. last night. We saw him last night in concert. Oh, you did? Yes. Yeah. Wow. He play, he play, Qualtrics hosted Steven Tyler last night in Salt Lake. And we Sweet. Okay. Luckily got tickets and it was awesome. Okay. Okay. Tomorrow that'll that's what we'll lead with. You okay. go do your show now. You got it, brother. And I'm going to just try to look healthier than Steven Tyler, which is going to be hard because he's already out there doing concerts. Dude, Oh, yeah. I knew we'd break into that. Okay, guys, until tomorrow, have a great show. (laughs) I don't want to close my eyes. You guys done? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're done. We're done. Okay, have have a great show, guys. End it now. Okay, we're out of here. Bye. Bye. That was incredible. Did you hear him? I think he got stuck. Oh, BYU is going to win the national championship. Jerem got hurt. That's great. Good stuff, folks. Um, I love those guys. Highly talented. Did you hear about this gas station clerk? Thwarts a holdup with scalding cup of coffee in in Indiana. Listen to this. A gas station clerk in Indiana thwarted a holdup by throwing a full cup of coffee at a would-be robber. The clerk spotted a masked man entering the gas station as he was filling up a cup of coffee and managed to fling the hot beverage directly on his face. Thank you. The incident, which lasted less than five seconds, was captured on a security camera and the shows the robber exit the store after being struck by the coffee. 
While some commend the clerk for his bravery, Brian Campbell of uh, the the I think it's the Muncie Police Department said that uh, re- reacting in such a way is not the best course of action during a robbery. I mean, I don't even know if it, was it a real robbery or did the guy just have a mask on? <laughs> That's why you don't wear a mask. No matter what, you're going to get burnt. You just don't wear a mask. Anyway, that's kind of a a pretty cool little hero story for you. I've also got another hero story that happened here locally. This is so cool. Uh, At the young age of 14, this comes from CBSNews.com, Hayden Godfrey learned something new in school. No girl should feel alone on Valentine's Day. As the middle schooler witnessed uh, students uh, pass out $1 red, white, and pink carnations to the same group of girls year after year, he watched the disappointed faces of the dozens who were left out. He said, I don't like this, he told his mom after school. I really feel bad that things are this way. That's when Godfrey decided to take matters into his own hands. Carnations arrive at Skyview High School in Utah on February 11, 2016. The next year, he anonymously sent flowers— to the girls he didn't think would get any. Um, he remembered watching the girls who, uh, who he sent them to and how surprised they were. His mother, Erin Godfrey, told CBS News, the following Valentine's Day, he bought a bunch of roses and passed them out to girls in the hall who weren't carrying anything. But over time, Godfrey, when he turned 16, he got a job at McDonald's working in his hometown um, in Smithfield, Utah. And for the past 18 months, The now 17-year-old has worked three jobs to save money to accomplish his goal, and his goal was basically making sure everybody in the school, every girl, received a carnation um, on Valentine's Day. By the time he got a girlfriend, his mom thought he'd back off, but he didn't. He said, I'm still going to do this. This isn't about love. It's about the commercial side of Valentine's. It's about bringing joy to everybody. His mother recalled him saying, three jobs, two years in school, and a few paychecks later, Godfrey purchased 900 carnations for about 450 bucks. On Thursday, on Valentine's Day, he recruited a school drama club to help him pass out the flowers to the 900 girls at Utah's Skyview High School. And uh, in the end, he said, I don't think anything can compare to seeing every girl in your life holding a flower as they walk through the halls. How cool is that? So, Hayden Godfrey, you are my hero of the day. Way to look out for uh, those that, you know, just needed to be, just needed to be seen. Really, we're gonna take, uh, we're gonna take that lesson. I think all of us and uh, go apply it in our lives. That's the show, friends. We are out of here until tomorrow. Remember, you can find us on iTunes, on TuneIn. Go look up our podcast. Also, you can look us up on the BYU Radio app. Live stream us there. Until tomorrow, folks, let's take care of each other. Let's watch out for those that uh, might be overlooked, and let's, uh, let's make it a great life. Until tomorrow, take care. We'll talk again tomorrow.